You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. A martial arts champion in search of the glow. Master, I need more time. I am no longer your master. A rock and roll star on the rise. I know what it's like to lose precious things. A madman. Shogun of Harlem. A maniac. Are you going to put my video on your show, aren't you? The answer is no. And the glamour, the power, and the sound of Motown. I don't want you to kill anybody. Are you out of your mind? The Leroy Green I'm looking for. The little pop thinks he's a kung fu master. I am no master. You sure look like a master to me. This is Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. It's about the power of the glow. Timok, Vanity. Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. Directed by Michael Schultz. A Motown Productions picture from TriStar. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Rob St. Mary is currently on assignment undercover in the Wu-Tang Clan, where his uh, Wu-Tang name, by the way, is Inebriated Assistant. I can't think of a better name for him. Joining me instead is our good friend, Chris Cummins. Hello. Also with us is the Shogun of Detroit, Julian Boyance. Honored to be here. We're starting the new year off right with a discussion of Michael Schultz's The Last Dragon. Released in 1985, the film stars the singularly named Timac as Leroy Green, a.k.a. Bruce Leroy. The film is one of a handful of theatrical releases produced by Motown Films, the cinematic arm of Detroit's own Motown Records. Motown and Coca-Cola are all over this film, as is a strange mix of Chinese and Japanese culture. Leroy is beset by gangsters hoping to make a big splash in the music business, as well as Shonuff, the shogun of Harlem, who wants to bring kind of a kung fu kingdom to the ghetto. Julian, as our guest, when was the first time you saw The Last Dragon, and what did you think? You know, I, I had the pleasure of being, you know, right around the, the target audience at that time, 15 years old. So I, I literally was, you know excitedly awaiting the, the screening and went to the movie theater. I, I wish I could remember which theater, but yeah, I actually went to it during its release. How about you, Chris? Uh, actually, the first time I saw it was about a month ago, uh, and I can't believe that because this movie is definitely right in my wheelhouse. I think it, it would be a perfect like film festival pick with like Big Trouble in Little China, uh, The Golden Child, and Black Belt Jones, definitely, as well. I really can't remember the first time that I saw The Last Dragon. I know it was just it was just always kind of there. It was part of the culture, part of the zeitgeist as far as, you know, knowing who Bruce Leroy was, knowing Shonuff, the Shogun of Harlem, and just uh, it seems like it would have been something that you just always saw in a video store. And I think that I probably saw this for the first time on VHS, and it took me a long time before I finally saw it on a DVD. Uh, it definitely seems like one of those movies that just would have lived so well on a VHS tape. And that's where the biggest audience, I think, came about for the movie. As much as it was 
you know, uh, caught during its release, I definitely think that the beauty of Vegas and beyond is where it grew, you know? So we start off with a great montage of Timac doing all these karate moves. Now, this was one year after the Karate Kid, so we are definitely in that kind of kung fu renaissance of American cinema. If it had been a white guy doing this, it would have fit right in there with the uh, what We Hate Movies calls the white guy karate films. But no, this is Timac. He is multiracial, and this has much more of an urban flair to it. And I know that there have been urban karate films before. Was it uh, Bamboo Gods and Iron Men? But this one... Uh, kind of was fitting a different set uh, of sensibilities here. Yeah, I mean, that, that I think, um, was that duality that he brought to the role, you know, that few people probably could, you know, in terms of had that great screen presence and then had the martial arts skills. Too. Though not a whole lot of acting chops. Some, some of his uh, dialogue scenes are really, really, uh, really rough to sit through. But, I mean, action-wise, he's, he's perfect. And I, I actually think, you know, part of the charm of the movie, uh, watching it without any nostalgia for it, was just, like, seeing his inability to kind of convey the romance and the dialogue as, as necessary. And, and I think that's one of the things is, is it's the type of film where, he doesn't have that much dialogue, so they didn't really challenge him as an actor or really probably try to work with him to, to go deeper into, to, into his acting skills. It's that classic. He doesn't say much. He's a quiet hero that just speaks with his actions. You know? so. Well, it's kind of fitting that the first time that we see Bruce Leroy, uh, Leroy Green here, is at a kung fu film. He's watching a uh, Bruce Lee film. And there's something about uh, his performance. I mean, he he could almost be uh, uh, a badly dubbed person, but uh, instead, his it's almost like that awkwardness of Timac the actor at that point in his career really fits well with the awkwardness of the Leroy Green character because he is definitely out of step with the rest of the world. It's an innocence that definitely you know fits the character because Leroy's this this person who's completely without guile and you know you get that through time Act's performance yeah and it's almost like his awkwardness within this world is, is and, and dealing with it it is part of the awkwardness he brings with his inexperience as an actor it's, it's kind of like inexperience kind of helps give him that 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 perfect kind of a combination of, of casting we are quickly introduced to Shonuff. Uh, Shonuff shows up with his posse at this uh, movie theater in New York City where Leroy is watching this Bruce Lee film, and he pretty much sets the tone of the film. I mean, we've gotten a little bit of Ty Mac and his master who are talking, and, and Ty Mac has reached the level where he can go out on his own, and he's given this quest by his master. But then we meet Shonuff, who is this larger-than-life character. I mean, he's taller than everybody else, as well as just has this presence, has this amazing outfit, has his posse, has his whole riffing where he is going to be doing this kind of call and response with his posse. And it is just pitch perfect and it really sets the tone for the whole rest of the film we really know as soon as we see this guy that we are now in basically a comic book film you know one of the crazy things about that is that if you can imagine and that's sort of the beauty of that scene and the power of it it's 
it's literally life imitating art. And can if you could imagine, you know, the, the martial art revivals were going on in urban cities at that time. Uh, so that that scene where you're sitting there watching a Bruce Lee film was literally me at that time, you know, when this film came out. And, and if you can imagine, you know, somebody actually busting into the theater like like happened there and, 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 and bringing the real life, you know, uh, martial arts world to life, that that's kind of like sort of the really the power of, of watching that scene. Um, for that film, it's like, wow, this, I'm living, you know, watching these films like this character. And here he is experiencing this crazy world coming to life. I would definitely think that Black Belt Jones would say that show enough belongs in a comic book. And he really fits the tone of the film and really kind of sets the stage for other characters that we're going to meet, such as the two gangsters who are played by Chris Murney and Mike Starr. Who I love. I love them both in the movie. Yeah, they're so good. The chemistry between Murney and Star is just terrific. And then when you add Faith Prince into the mix, who's this kind of reluctant ingenue, who's, I would think, kind of doing like a uh, Judy Holiday impersonation. Yeah, that's, that's really, and, and you know, the, the film is kind of much maligned for that subplot. Um, but but like, like I think we, we all kind of agree, it seems that the performance of not only, um, you know, Mike Starr and, and uh, the Eddie um, uh, Arcadian character and everything, and what, Chris Mundy, um, the, 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 and, and then the, 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 the girl that plays the kind of take on Cindy Lauper during the time, kind of a spoof of her. Uh, they all really do a superb job in their roles and are really hilarious and uh, capture that time period in a great way, in a funny way. Like, I, I mean, again, coming into this as and never having seen it before, I mean, when, when starting instantly when, when Show Enough comes on screen, I mean, he's just totally engaging and over the top and like you're like okay i want to learn so much more about this character and see what he's up to and like i gotta say for for portions of the film i was rooting for him and and just the uh you know the the side plot with i'm i'm such a massive fan of uh like fake music in real movies uh, i i love when movies have fake songs in them that are meant to be like taken as real uh, so the whole like Cindy Lauper esque fake music video in this movie really, uh, really got me. I think these actors were aware of what kind of film they were in. Maybe not Vanity, but I think everyone else was. I think they gave a suitable scenery chewing performance. And uh, like you singled out Mike Starr and the uh, actor who played uh, Arcadian, and they they were just they were just uh, really really terrific and hammy and exactly what you wanted those guys to be. If you didn't already know that this was a joke, that you see this huge tank that's filled with piranha, which was, I don't know what it was about the piranha and 80s, but they fit together very well. And you're just waiting, like, it's like Chekhov's piranha. When is this thing going to come into play? Oh, man. And, and that's the thing. It's like Chris Murney, and yeah, I definitely want to give him credit uh, because... Uh, he, it's like you say, uh, Chris, he, they, they were in on a joke probably. It's like, and they took it to the level they needed to. And what's great too. And I'm not going to lie. I had kind of forgotten totally that Mike Starr 
you know, everybody's favorite guy from Goodfellas right. uh, was, was in it. Um, after rewatching it um, not that long ago, um, I had totally forgot. And and one of the beauties of that is, is and I kind of missed this opportunity to mention The Last Dragon to him. I ran into him at a, at a film-related uh, gathering uh, a few years back, and I had, um, at that time, I totally forgot he was in The Last Dragon, but he's one of those character actors that you love to see pop up in a movie, and, and this is one of his early roles, so it's kind of great to see him in it. Vanity is definitely an interesting addition to this film. There are times when it feels like Vanity is almost in her own movie. Not only the wrong movie, literally, and this is what I was thinking today, thinking about talking about the film, is it felt like she just did not want to be there. I don't know if it was in her drug uh, phase of her life and she was just kind of, you know, um, into that uh, too deeply. But uh, the biggest thing, it felt like she just did not want to be there in the film. Like she was bothered to be in it. So she's kind of this local VJ on, uh, I don't know, it's almost like an American bandstand type show where she's there spinning the hits, brought to us by Coca-Cola. We cannot forget that. And it's interesting how, as she's there playing these videos, the whole movie just kind of stops at one point so that we can see the Rhythm of the Night video by <laughs> El DeBarge. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's weird, and it's also amazing. Yeah. It's that other world between, you know, the post-disco era you know, and then the music video uh, uh, era, and it just, it's 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 got that weird combination and, and, and world, and like you say, um, it kind of reminded me of, and I remember watching some of those late night 80s uh, video shows uh, to see the latest videos being played, so that subplot of them trying to force their way out to her show kind of rang with some, um, um, you know, like truth to, you know, that yeah. real life time period. Oh, and I love the video. I, I swear to God, that, that video, uh, which is, the, again, the Cindy Lauper type of um, a spoof, it, it, it's, it's, it just hits it perfectly, and I love the visuals of it all. And then, again, the performance of what was it, Faith Prince, uh, who played the girlfriend in, in, of, of the gangster. So. And I want to say that those songs aren't on the soundtrack album either, which really bumps me out. Uh, I don't understand that. I mean, I mean, come on, uh, Raw Dog, Sukiyaki, Hasaki Su. Where, where is it? <laughs> There's got to be uh, a fan website for that movie that has like high quality MP3s out there. I'd be surprised if there weren't. But I want to hear like the second and third verse, the musical intro, the yeah. outro and everything. I want the full song. And, and I did want to mention something you mentioned earlier, Chris. Uh, I thought that you hit a great note in terms of mentioning like like a single triple feature uh, of, of Golden Child, Big Trouble and, and this film. Uh, that, that was a perfect, uh, I, I thought, combination of films. Yeah, I just think they'd really uh, they'd really complement each other really well because there was that like around 85 and 86 there was that just massive interest in like you know mysticism and putting it in kind of like action comedies where you never thought it would you know it would go well but i think all three of those movies work really well for different reasons and yeah i think it would be great exactly and i think one of the keynotes is um we can't deny the karate kid effect you know at that time and um, its influence on uh, opening up, you know, more of these films to be made during that time period. That one really has to go at the top of your cues. 
Tanya's Island was one of four films that were directed, as far as I know, by Alfred Soule, who I've talked about on the show before. He's done, of his four movies, he did one that was a uh, porn film called Deep Sleep. He did Alice Sweet Alice, which a lot of people know as being one of Brooke Shields' first films, even though she's kind of killed off early spoiler uh, and he did one called pandemonium which i love a lot uh, just a crazy film there's a little bit about that i think on the rock and roll high school episode because uh, one of the writers from rock and roll high school also worked on pandemonium and then he did tanya's island which was just a terrific it was like a canadian tax shelter film where vanity uh she's going under the name dd winters in that one her uh, i don't know if, if that's a real name or what it was but that was what she used the first couple times before she ran into prince and uh uh, it is terrific. It was uh, Creature Effects by Rick Baker and Tanya, who is on a uh, desert island with this one other man, um, basically has this ape fall in love with her. And uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's like Max Monomore um, exploitation version. So definitely check that out. What year was that released? Do you know? It was 1980. Okay. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, she mentioned actually was looking at an old performance up around Soul Train, um, you know, for a little research. And I, I, she mentioned, he asked her about acting in The Last Dragon, you know, that it was about to come out. And she mentioned that she had, you know, performed before. So I guess she had had some acting experience um, before this. But yeah, it, it's, it's, it, it, it definitely, I mean, she centers the film, yet it's so strange how, you know, she's kind of like a non-entity, uh, even though she's this major influence, you know, on the story. I like the rock, Eddie Arcadian, uh, Angela story quite a bit. I love the show enough storyline as we go through here. Uh, but the stuff with Leroy at times just kind of falls a little bit flat. And I do have to say that his brother, oh God, the, the stuff with his family, but especially his brother, I know he's supposed to be funny and everything, but he is just such a dick all the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And well, they always say he's the street smart kid and, and you have to admit it's his kind of, um, critique of him and, and, and breakdown of him and just kind of. Um, just going into the guy that 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 really kind of breaks him out of his shell finally, um, and, and you know what it is? It's that 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 the famed uh, hero's journey. It's that that uh, point uh, of call to advent, uh, kind of call to adventure, or um, that that moment of change where he has to um, t- take take hold of, of of accomplishing that goal. You know, so. The, the kid, it brings that street smarts, the actor, and, and, you know, come to find out later in life, he had some troubles. Uh, but he really does uh, bring a, a kind of uh, power to, to, you know, playing that little brother role and, and kind of sparking the hero onto his journey, you know? I like how you're bringing Joseph Campbell to The Last Dragon here. <laughs> so, yeah, and then there's the Glenn Eaton and Ernie Reyes stuff, and that kind of falls flat for me again. And I don't know, I, they're good comic relief and everything, but I think with Ernie Reyes having been more familiar with him in Conan the Destroyer, he's just another one of these really precocious kids. And so that just kind of irked me as well. Well, everyone seems to say, and you know, agrees with you. I think that everybody says the film would have just like as as much as it's beloved, 
um, and becomes cult, great film, is that if there was more sure enough, uh, you know, sure enough at that time, um, the, the story would be that much more powerful, you know, and even better. It's definitely a movie that can benefit by some tighter editing or some yanking of certain subplots and more of other. One of the things that stood out to me, too, reading some of the old reviews at that time, too, that really kind of stuck out, stuck out is the New York Times, Janet Maslin, and, and then Roger Ebert's, uh, is that, you know, I think a lot of the reviews were uh, took the film a little bit too serious and didn't appreciate the kind of kiss factor. Um, and and uh, it's like um, they love someone like Jeffrey Coons, yet couldn't see the kind of kiss factor uh, and a film like this a little bit more, um, just it, it's, it's kind of winning nature of that, that fact that it has this, this, this kish fact. It doesn't take itself too serious. So Eber, Eber kind of got that a little bit more than Maslin, it seemed. But, and I think despite the film's flaws, it's an important Hollywood production, uh, for black cinema, not only at that time, but even today. Uh, even though it wasn't a huge box office hit, it was a, a big box office hit relative to budget. And uh, again, it just, um, it's taken on this new life, you know, because of the internet and beyond and, and, and the beauty of cult films. And that's what I think when I brought up that kiss factor, cult films is that that's the thing with them. Uh, the beauty is you never know what films will take a, a hold of a audience's consciousness uh, and they will elevate this film to a greatness in their own mind, you know. So, um, cult films, uh, that foundation uh, is seen in a film like The Last Dragon. No, I would never try to deny The Last Dragon's place in filmic history. It is such an important film. And when you look at Michael Schultz's filmography, the director of, of The Last Dragon, he had done and has done so many terrific films and, and oh, wow. what I would consider to be important films. I know a lot of people go to Cooley High when it comes to his filmography, but I would say that something like Car Wash, people tend to forget what a big deal Car Wash was. And for me, it was this great kind of bringing together of old and new, you know, it was not necessarily a baton pass, but you had the introduction of a lot of great young talent as well as some older, more established talent, uh, at least, you know, people who were more recognizable, like a George Carlin or a Richard Pryor, these kind of guys. And if you go back to that movie, there are just so many great quotable lines for that because there is definitely nothing lower than fly shit. Yeah, I agree. I mean, Michael Schultz, it, it is kind of, I mean, he, in a sense, he gets his due um, being this black filmmaker that made kind of uh, great films, um, didn't have, and even The Last Dragon, but. He's kind of almost in the sense of forgotten legend, in a sense, even though he's given a lot of credit for his successes. He, I mean, Cooley High and, like you say, Car Wash are just uh, indelible films that 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 really broke unique molds and 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 still still stand the test of time. You know, I think even going back to Chris's idea of doing a triple feature, if you were to do a triple feature of Michael Schultz's work, where you were to pick out three, such as like a triple feature of The Last Dragon, Crush Groove, and Disorderlies, that would make for one hell of a night. Yes. Oh, yeah. I mean, that... that, that. And you know what's... Uh, this film, too, that kind of stands out when we talk about the, the lead character and, and the lead role, and th- 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 that makes this film somewhat a challenge and kind of like the power of, of, 
not only uh, the the actor's uh, screen presence and you know kind of became the sex symbol, but you have a passive protagonist that's not really that active until very late into the film, and that's tough to do in any film, especially a martial arts film, is to have this passive character that's not active, uh, like you know something like you know Big Trouble in Little China. One of the things about the glow when it comes to the film, I have to say that I kind of missed the first time when they were talking about the glow, or maybe I'd just forgotten about it, because it doesn't seem like it's necessarily... Leroy does not talk about it a lot, and so I tend to forget about it. And then when it comes up, it's like, oh yeah, he's got the high-pro glow, okay. Um, so is is that just me, or did you guys kind of uh, forget about the glow as well, or is that such an important part that just everybody remembers about it, and it's just me being stupid? It wasn't as directly, you know, he, he talked about it, but it wasn't as, it didn't seem to be as direct as, as you know, we learned kind of later on about it. I love how the master puts him on this kind of, uh, I don't know, imaginary quest where he's supposed to find this really wise yeah. master. And uh, it's just, it runs Tymac into these three Asian guys who are uh, basically uh, playing black a little bit. And then Tymac, as Bruce Leroy, is playing Asian in this. And just this strange dichotomy to see these two races kind of out of sort and right. kind of busting the stereotypes, but at the same time, maybe enforcing them. But uh, I mean, it is such a strange notion of seeing these two uh, forces interacting and just, you know, the, the way that they uh, really explode um, the, the notions that we have about these two groups. You know, I, honestly, that I, that was one of the major points I wanted to bring up when discussing this film is, is you know, when they try to, you know, he's practicing to speak jive and, and slang to, to, to enter. Um, th this film, one of the most, and I think that's why audiences love the film partially, it's one of the kind of within the black culture and world, it, it to put it simply, it, you had a person who allowed their freak flag to fly in terms of being themselves and just being different than, than, than the norm or what's expected of a black man, for example, or a black person. And so, like, in today's, the, 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 the youth today, I think, have embraced kind of uh, an openness that, that wasn't seen during the 80s and 90s. Um, it's it's opened up even more to be yourself like this character, uh, even if you're different. And and that's one of the things that I think uh, really stands out about this film. It's a little strange to me, too, that so many people keep referring to Leroy as a coolie, which, as far as I know, you know, is a unskilled laborer. But I would think that it's kind of an insult, maybe. I don't think it's nearly as powerful as like the N word or anything, but it definitely seems like it was kind of a word that you're not supposed to use, but maybe that's just me coming from more of a PC background. Yeah. You, you know, I, I see the film. I, I thought of this phrase, a postcard to America's love affair with martial arts films. You know, it's, it's, it's that film that kind of encompasses that idea. And, you know, if you look at it, the, the, the love affair with martial arts films is all due to one guy who's the, you know, center of the film, which is Bruce Lee. 
I think that, that that honestly is something that gives the film a lot of depth too. Is it's like Bruce was the man when it comes to martial arts film, so he kind of you know brings that 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 clarity to this this character's uh, kind of world. There's that scene of Timac and Vanity watching a Bruce Lee film, which is a really nice kind of scene, and it's that's also where he yeah. gets the idea of going undercover uh, from from an old Bruce Lee film. Uh, I can't remember which one it was because it's strange how Bruce Lee films were named something in Hong Kong, and then they had the different names in the U.S. and then the translated names, and it always seemed like one was not necessarily matching up with the other. But anyway, that's a that's a whole other discussion when and if we cover a Bruce Lee film at some point in the future. But anyway, it's good that they're playing with these Bruce Lee themes because we also have the whole thing of, I think it's uh, Fist of Fury, where we have the Japanese coming in and trying to take over the, the Chinese school and the Japanese who are acting superior to everybody. There's that sign like, you know, no dogs or Chinese allowed. And that's really kind of brought to the fore with the whole Shogun of Harlem thing with Show Enough, uh, kind of you know trying to exert his power over the ghetto or whatever. And uh, so that was nice that we were able to play with those themes of what was happening in the Bruce Lee films and brought them into The Last Dragon. That's the the great kind of intertextuality seen within the film and that, that that fact that you have this homage to not only Bruce Lee but even some of his films, you know, directly and indirectly, you know, whether it's a scene that he, he learns, you know, from or, you know, the yellow jumpsuit. And, you know, I, I, I honestly watching Kill Bill, I really didn't think of The Last Dragon as much as I should have regarding her wearing the yellow jumpsuit, you know, of Bruce Lee, you know, from Chinese Connection, Fist of Fury. Um, but the last dragon did it first, you know, in terms of that character, uh, being kind of influenced by that yellow jumpsuit, the famed yellow jumpsuit. Cause that's where it kicks, um, uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's ass with it, you know, in the yellow jumpsuit, Bruce Lee. I wish they would have been able to finish Game of Death because I think it would have been such a great movie. But what they ended up doing with it is just so wrong in so many places, and it's just such a disappointment. It's definitely, they could not save the film the same way that, you know, years and years later, they sadly had to do kind of the save with The Crow, uh, with Bruce Lee's son. But yeah, it's just uh, some weird stuff going on in that film. And if folks haven't seen Game of Death, I would recommend taking a look at it just to see kind of how to not necessarily shoot around having a dead star. <laughs> yeah. It still retains, you know, some of the beauty of still seeing them at least though, you know, getting back to something I mentioned re- regarding the character that you had. And then this was kind of like a direct quote that you hear. I think I, I heard um, Schultz mention that uh, you had a different kind of hero, but it's simply and. And audiences kind of uh, identified with this kind of strange character eating popcorn with chopsticks. What's really great about this movie is like it could have just been like this cheap, dumb cash in on the fact that like, hey, Karate Kid's big. People want to see kung fu, like contemporary kung fu movies set in the 80s. But instead, it's got so much more going on than just like this. I mean, it's silly at times, but it's the best kind of silly. And uh, and it's it's really like uh like one of you guys mentioned, it really is multi-textured because 
there is like there's a lot of weird and fun stuff going on in this movie if you give it a chance to to really analyze it. One of the things that, you know, I mentioned, I was kind of the target audience when this film came out. I literally spent time in in downtown Detroit going to, you know, the martial art revival films at uh, the the Madison Theater and the Adams Theater. And and literally, um, when I watched this film, you know, being into those five deadly venom type of films, uh, during the, you know, at these these um, uh, film uh, movie theaters, you know, these revivals, I kind of, on one hand, was kind of disconnected because I was expecting, you know, you know, a Karate Kid, you know, uh, or Five Deadly Venoms type of of structure and story and, and characters, and 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 The Last Dragon, as as you just mentioned, Chris, it 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 kind of throws it into its own form that that is quite different than those films, but yet has elements of, of, of both. I know, uh, I know that audience is really connected with this movie. I mean, in Philly, it's kind of infamous how much audience is connected with this movie because on uh, Easter Sunday in 1985, uh, people left the movie so like charged up and so happy about it. They were doing like kung fu moves and uh, on the street outside the Sam Eric Theater, which is an old historic theater in Philly that used to be the Boyd. People acting out kung fu stuff wound up becoming yeah. uh, this huge riot that cost twenty five thousand dollars in damage on Chestnut Street, wow. and uh, just was like it was uh, just this real embarrassment for the city. And it was just you know it became this overblown political thing in the city. But really, when it comes down to it, it was just kids blowing off steam because they enjoyed a movie. One of the things um, about the film that kind of stands out too is, is you, you think of things that, that work and don't work. I mean, the very end of the film, you know, which is, you know, the full good happy ending. Uh, I do really do like how it's set up, you know, where it just comes in there and then you into the club and, and you see, he has the white outfit, which brings, you know, some, some kind of visual uh, color coding, of the heroes uh, succeeding uh, and his success and become this new man. But I just like how they kind of fade and leave together during that song at the very end that, that, that wraps up the film. And it just has a, even though I'm not the biggest uh, happy ending, perfect type of setting, it, it works well here. And, and I just think visually the way it's set up, uh, them kind of being pulled away just is the kind of romantic ending. I would have liked to maybe see a sting with Shonuff, you know, coming back at the very Oh, yeah. End, but, you know, but and like the kind of ending that, that perfectly befits this type of movie. That seems to be in terms of, yeah, if he did come back. And that that's, that's I guess, and it, it's happened for other films, but the kind of legend of the film is that there was no sequel so far, you know, whether they're still trying or not, but, um, or doing a reboot, uh, who knows. Yeah. But I didn't know about supposedly, um, Timac kind of being tough in negotiations for a sequel, supposedly, which supposedly made it not happen. But that, that's always the kind of legend and lore of the film too, is that there was no sequel when yeah. you see how the eighties was the sequel era. And here you had a film that kind of begged for a sequel and it never happened right away. Right. 
the music for the film is fantastic. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the Angela songs. There's also some good score songs going in there. There's the obligatory Let's Stop the World and have the El Barge song. Uh, Vanity sings at one point. And then you've got these songs by Willie Hutch. And Willie Hutch, if folks aren't familiar, he was the one who did the soundtrack for films like Foxy Brown and The Mac. And he just did these great, great scores for these films. But I have to say that there are times where the music doesn't necessarily jive to me, where it just kind of all seems separate. Like, I think having had those Willie Hutch songs, they have one feel to them, and then the score has a little bit different of a feel, and then dropping in these kind of, uh, you know, the Motown songs on top of it just doesn't necessarily work for me. I wish it had all been just the Willie Hutch stuff doing full bore for the whole film maybe with the elder barge and of course the you know the the songs that um uh, the songs that angela does are definitely entities unto themselves but i i think the rest of the film could have done for just kind of a, a an even tone to it you, that's kind of key that you mentioned him and his songs is because you know when you hear something like the glow it does sort of have that. It's, it's sort of like that bridge between the seventies, um, not only black exploitation films, but but that music style, and then kind of elevated to the eighties, and and he kind of merges that. It seems, and and like you say, those songs really do stand out. Well, there's also that kind of exploitation bridge when it comes to the guy that played show enough show enough who's played by julius carey who to me will forever be known for one of his earliest roles where he was the uh nephew of the avenging disco godfather bucky who definitely has had one of the best lines about him not necessarily not necessarily said by him but about him in disco godfather where is bucky and what has he had the, the actor, it seems, you know, and that that's one thing that uh, obviously you wish you were around to appreciate some of the success, but it seems like audiences really did show this actor love, you know, post, you know, The Last Dragon um, and appreciation of his performance because he really does, um, you know, center and, 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 and give the film its foundation, not only um, because of the unique costume, but, but just, you know, his, his, his performance. And uh, Carrie, you know, Julius Carey probably um, was able to bring that depth because of his past experiences, you know, working in films. Julian, I wanted to ask you, you had mentioned going down to Detroit and seeing films like this. Now, I know going through the microfiche of old newspapers from Detroit, looking at the theaters that were in Detroit at the time and what they were playing in the late 70s, early 80s, there always seemed to be this connection between the kind of urban venues and kung fu films. Why do you necessarily think that there was that going on and when i even think of things like you know channel 62 uh wgpr they used to have the uh kung fu movies on uh i think it was early sunday maybe right before bullwinkle anyway but it just always seemed like there was that connection between more of an urban audience and uh chopsaki films do you think maybe it was this kind of like well these films represent the oppressed and we're going to play them to make black people feel good Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, one thing is, uh, and I noticed this was there was um, a listing of an article 
uh, in the Journal of American Studies uh, titled, um, He Wanted to Be Just Like Bruce Lee, African-Americans, Kung Fu Theater, and Cultural Exchange at the Margins. I think it was a confluence of, of the time uh, with this interest in martial arts and, and that Eastern mysticism uh, within the black community in general. But I, honestly, I really think it goes back to what I mentioned, uh, for one, which is Bruce Lee. Uh, Bruce Lee films were popular with black audiences, uh, and and those films, uh, these you know Five Deadly Venom type of films of the seventies, uh, those products, especially in the uh, late seventies and eighties, you know they started like you mentioned, uh, Mike, they started to be brought to these urban uh, theaters more, and the you know or combined with other films, and then you had the um, in the eighties the you know, martial art revivals uh, in these theaters, they were cheap. You know, we we would go see double features for a cheap price so they could, you know, market them and show two movies at one time. And then the other thing is, is um, I distinctly remember this, Mike, relative to the Detroit area, Channel 20. Channel 20, um, which, what, what are those considered? Uh, those, whether the UHF or whatever, where it's not the main sta- stations. Channel 20 would show almost all of the Five Deadly Venom type of films uh, each Saturday and stuff. And so we were just like bombarded uh, with these films, and there was a, a, a hunger, I think, for not only kids, but people around Detroit, and I'm sure in other cities, they were showing these films on TV cheaply, you know, and so. Philly showed uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine at least once a month, it felt like. I remember as a young man going to Chicago and flipping on the, the local channels there and seeing a kung fu film that was dubbed into Spanish, which I found hilarious being a you know young Spanish speaker uh, coming in from my uh, two years of uh, – coming in from my two semesters of high school Spanish and seeing this guy, this very lecherous guy looking at this woman's leg and being like, Oh, me gusta. So it's not just a black audience. I suppose I suppose it's any urban audience because the Chicagoland area is definitely made up of a lot of Latino people. So it's interesting that it's just kind of the, uh, uh, the, the urban population seems to be being fed or maybe has a demand for this type of film. Yeah, I mean, Bruce Lee's legacy, it's, it's honestly, it's, I mean, not only, that's what's interesting about Bruce Lee is he brought, he tried to, you know, teach martial arts to non-Asians, which got him in trouble. So he brought not only martial art interest to non-Asians, but he also, he's just this, this, this powerful um, you know, kind of visual and, 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 and influence upon martial art films. Um, in such a powerful way that it, it's really kind of amazing that one guy kind of dominates this, this genre in such a powerful manner. And and again, it influenced, I think, a lot of people to want to see these type of films after Ender the Dragon came out. It just broke open them all. Yeah, I don't think you can stress enough just what a game changer Enter the Dragon was by kind of bringing that kung fu film that had been so popular in Hong Kong and China into a more mainstream American audience and doing it with that kind of, uh, they, they knew what they were doing by bringing in Jim Kelly and John Saxon and Bruce Lee as being our kind of three heroes and splitting the story between the three guys. And it was a really nice, smart way of doing it. 
One of the things, too, I think that stands out about the film is, is all great cult films have some great trivia. And again, like the casting of the film, you had it kind of littered with all kinds of little character uh, or actors that went on to later success, whether it's William Macy, Chaz Palminteri, uh, Keisha Knight-Pullum from um, uh, Cosby Show, uh, Carl Anthony Payne the second from Martin and other uh, films and productions. Uh, that's one of the things, and uh, again, uh, this is the type of film uh, whose legacy, it, it, it was a black film that at the time, Black audiences had a hunger and a thirst to see the film, uh, whatever, you know, with flaws or whatnot. But it was also an audience, uh, a film that could, could be widely seen by, uh, by audiences beyond uh, just being targeted to black audiences. So it, it, it really has a unique uh, legacy that way. And, and I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up, because it really stood out rewatching the film. The Eddie Arcaden, I guess it, it, it got a lot of... Um, um, uh, acclaim uh, back then, but the Eddie Arcadian office uh, in terms of set design, just, oh man, I fell in love with the the cash um, um, deco uh, backdrop that it had, the, the whole, you know, obviously that, that, that weird water monster uh, stood out, but it, it really is a unique set design. It seemed like, um, it it it, um, it just really stood out for me as, as an amazing set design in this little film. All right, we're going to take a rather extended break here and play a series of interviews with folks that were involved with The Last Dragon. Now, you're going to hear from five people here, so please bear with me. When it comes to these interviews, we're going to hear from the writer of The Last Dragon, Louis Venosta, star Tymac. We're going to hear from Mike Starr, from Christopher Murney, and then finally just a little bit from Rupert Hitzig. The uh, Rupert Hitzig bit is what you didn't hear on our Electric Glide in Blue episode way back when. Now, when it comes to the Mike Starr stuff, uh, there's a lot more of that. So if you want more of Mike Starr, definitely go over to our website, projection-booth.com, and download the bonus interview. He talks for about an hour with some other films that he was in, uh, especially some films that we've covered here on the Projection Booth, things like uh, Cruising and Free Jack and Ice Harvest, uh, Cabin Boy, and then he also gives you the lowdown on things like uh, Dumb and Dumber and Goodfellas. The, what he talks about with Goodfellas is just absolutely amazing, so you really need to check that out. So uh, I'll be a nice guy. I know people have complained about this before. I will you know, kind of tell you who's going to be coming up in the show, and then people forget, and then they get confused because there's too many interviews. So I'll be a really nice guy, and I'll even give you a little introduction and just say, okay, and now this person. So be prepared for that. Up front, after these messages, is the writer of The Last Dragon, Louis Venosta. In 1939, Timely Comics published its first issues. It later changed its name, first to Atlas Comics and then to Marvel Comics. In 2014, Marvel polled its fans asking for the 75 greatest Marvel stories from those 75 years and published that list in print form. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown will walk through all 75 of these stories every Wednesday from December 31st, 2014 to June 1st, 2016. Join me, Blaine Dowler, and a cadre of other hosts, including established podcasting greats and emerging talents, 
as we run through the list, discussed each story in the context of its original release, and determined just what makes it so great. The unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown can be found at Bureau42.com, on iTunes, and on Stitcher. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B. O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books, he writes reviews, he's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from The Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know, Cinema Detours, Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there, and you basically want to pick it up, and I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him and thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at amazon.com, and you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle, your e-reader. So there's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. This is Adam Spiegelman, the host of my second favorite movie podcast called Proudly Resents at ProudlyResents.com. And you are listening to my favorite, the number one, The Projection Booth. Mike put so much work into it. If you listen to my show, I put no work into it. Enjoy the rest of the show, you lucky son of a gun. I want to know the whole thing. What are the dirty details? How'd you, how'd you go from writing your first screenplay to writing The Last Dragon? The first screenplay I wrote was, you know, I was a pretty serious character. I wrote a very serious screenplay um, about a summer that I had spent in Italy after I left Maurice Bejar's dance company. Uh, I believe it was the summer of 78 when Aldo Moro was kidnapped. And I had written this very serious screenplay about Americans getting involved in Italian terrorism um, when it was the Red Brigades and all that stuff. And it was a, it's a pretty ambitious piece. Uh, and that piece um, won the Writers Guild Fellowship Award. And that came with writing, you know, another serious script. Uh, sorry, another serious script. And after that, I was kind of really bored with uh, sort of more theatrical 
serious side of Lewis. I said, right, let, let's have some fun. Let me do something that can actually get made. That's just... And this weird thing happened. It was, uh, I guess it was 1983, and um, somebody... Uh, it was 10 years after Bruce Lee had died and they reopened Enter the Dragon on Broadway. And uh, I asked my girlfriend, have you ever seen this guy, Bruce Lee? And she said, no. And I said, oh, you got to see this guy. And so we lived a few blocks from there. I lived on the west side of Manhattan there. And um, we walked over to this theater and walked in and it was very much like the opening of the last dragon and they were all it was like the rocky horror picture show watching the last they were watching enter the dragon there were all these kids dressed in these chinese you know outfits and it was very much that scene and i kind of looked around the audience and i, I looked at my girlfriend and i said have you seen what what i'm seeing here she said uh yeah and i kind of we kind of made up the idea <laughs> walking home my first thought, actually, you know, funnily enough, was to do it as a Broadway musical. I wanted all the Kung Fu to be danced. I thought it should be this big sort of spectacular show. And uh, she said, don't be an idiot. Write a movie. So so I did. And it was, it's probably the fastest script I ever wrote. I literally sat down and I had the script probably in six weeks. It just kind of... It was just kind of there. I mean, it was easy be, for me. It was easy because a, you know, I spent a lot of time as a slipping out of junior high school to go hang out on those Forty Second Street, you know, triple features of Five Fingers of Death and all those, you know, Kung Fu marathons. So I knew, I knew Kung Fu world very well. I kind of just structured it on the, you know, on that sort of archetype. There are a couple of other things, you know, that I had in mind. I mean, The Last Dragon was very much a reflection of me. You know, I'm, I'm all sort of mixed up racially. And, you know, I kind of grew up in, in a New York that, you know, was all those different things. And, you know, as I was writing and I saw this, you know, I was also friends at the time with Mario Van Peebles. So I knew Melvin and I was big. I really sort of had watched the whole black exploitation film movement, and you know, there was this thing that started to become clear was that there had never really been a black motion picture hero that wasn't either a cop or you know a criminal or whatever. It was just like this character had not that we could think of had not really been seen on film before. And literally these, you know, like I say, it all kind of, I got to give credit to my girlfriend. You know, I was going, all right, what do I call this guy? I was like, you know, Leroy, Leroy. She's like, yeah, Bruce Leroy. And I went, oh, that's it. And, uh, literally had the show gun of Harlem by the time, you know, we got up the elevator to our apartment. Um, it was just one of those things that fell together very quickly. Um, the original plan was to kind of try to make it for a million or two dollars with with myself directing at that time in New York, you know, I I had this whole sort of, you know, all these production guys that I got close to in fame. All those ADs had started to become production managers, and everybody's like, let's make this movie. We were going about making the movie. There was a Writers Guild cocktail party or something for the fellowship winners, and this kid who uh, was an assistant at William Morris at the time showed up and he was this very funny looking kid uh, with curly blonde hair and these like inch and a half pink suspenders and and he showed up and he said you know 
and it was me and there were a couple of other guys with him on the way. He said, I want to sign you guys. Would you guys sign with me? <laughs> we all kind of looked at him and like, yeah, we like you. So we all signed with him. And uh, he literally sold The Last Dragon two weeks later. I mean, oh, like, wow. in the middle of this, I gave him this script and, you know, he was an assistant and he sold the script uh, to Linda Gottlieb, who was working at Highgate Pictures at the time. And um, he was immediately promoted and then stolen from William Morris to ICM. And he's now probably, you know, one of the most powerful guys in the, in the movie business. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fun story. I mean, this is Jeremy Zimmer I'm talking about, uh, who's you know, the CEO and founder of UTA. And, you know, we all started as kids and uh, kind of had a lot of fun, you know, going to Hollywood and doing all that stuff. How close to what we see on screen is what was there in these early drafts that you're doing? I think my, you know, my vision of the movie was probably, it, it was absolutely not as, it was meant to be very funny. Obviously, it was meant to be a comedy and a send-up of this stuff. I don't really do broad comedy, and it went through some changes, which I was kind of dismayed about at the time. Linda Godley brought it to Suzanne DePass. Suzanne DePass and Linda were the producers of the movie. And if you notice on the movie, Linda Godley and Suzanne DePass's names are nowhere to be seen, which I always find extraordinary because they were the women who really made this movie happen. Of course, Mr. Gordy played a huge role when he came on. You know, he really brought a a different sensibility. He had a, you know, he to me he was. It's funny because I look at him now and he, I'm like, how is this guy still around? He seemed the old then and he still seems so vital now. Um, it's amazing. But he was, to me, he was very old fashioned, but I was just, you know, I felt like I was a kid suddenly, you know, in this guy's house in Bel Air and we had a different sense of humor and we had our disagreements and very kind of Mr. Gordy, he, you know, I should, I, should, I should show him the due respect now. I used to call him Barry. He didn't like it. <laughs> he saw the, the whole idea being sort of, I guess, more cartoonish than I did. Had I directed the film, it probably would have been much more serious and probably much less successful. You know, who knows? I mean, who knows? Maybe it would have been a different kind of cult movie, but you know, it's actually funny because I watched the movie for the first time in a long time on a screen about six weeks ago. There was a screening down at Tribeca. And it was fascinating watching the audience now because it was exactly, it was very much like that first audience except for this movie. It was like the Rocky Horror Picture Show all over again. Everybody in the audience was saying all the lines out loud with the characters. And Part of that was, a, I think, a, just a whole series of really, of cho some choices I honestly, I did not understand. This costume designer was brought in from Broadway. Who would ever have thought to put Shonuff in shoulder pads and these preposterous costumes? But I watched the movie today. Well, when you watch it with an audience anyway, somehow it's, it really works. It's one of those things where I just don't know. I, I, I'm going to actually have lunch with Michael uh, Schultz on Saturday and kind of want to ask him some of these questions because we haven't really talked about this in a long time. You know, Michael to me really kept the movie, I think from going too far 
in that direction. I mean, I, I credit much of, you know, what the movie is, besides the obvious the original inspiration and all that. Uh, I, I think Michael did an extraordinary job of sort of navigating the currents that were all pulling this thing in, in different directions. I think Michael was extraordinary. He taught me so much about the business. You know? I mean, this was one of Barry Gordy's first productions, wasn't it? One of Motown Films' first productions? He had done Mahogany. That's right. He had done those Diana Ross movies. So I wouldn't say he was new to film, but it was definitely this feeling that he was coming out of retirement. I mean, that's what I re- I sort of remember, like, oh, Barry's coming out of, Mr. Gordy's coming out of retirement to do this film. And that's why I laugh about it now, because he was probably in his 50s at the time, uh, coming out of retirement. But I actually, you know, I really liked him. I, I, I I disagree with him, but you know he's a he's a fascinating guy in his history. Was he? I don't remember. Was it? Wasn't he a part of Lady Sings the Blues too? Yeah. Oh, and definitely the Wiz. So, but well, the yeah, Wiz, you're right. Think, wasn't the Wiz later? I think the Wiz was the last of a of a little string because there's yeah, Lady Sings I don't the think, Blues. I don't remember him having anything to do with the Wiz. That was Sidney Lumet. Um, I think that Barry had had something to do with the Wiz, other than maybe represent some Diana Roth, or some, you know, getting a credit on it. Maybe I doubt seriously that with Sidney Lumet directing that movie, that that he had that much to do. But clearly, Mahogany and Lady Sings the Blues feel to me like they were Barry Gordy movies. The Last Dragon was not that. I mean, those were Diana Roth's vehicles. This was something that, again, there was no real precedent for. This is what I think, you know, somehow I created. I created this original idea that a lot of people got really excited about. And it was the beginning of a, you know, it was a, it was a really fun time. You know, it was the beginning of my career in business. Um, it started everything for me. And it was great. You talked a little bit about your relationship with uh, the director, Michael Schultz. What was that kind of like? Did you stick around after the shooting had started? Because I know sometimes it's like, yeah, no writers allowed, or were you there the whole time? Michael and I were very close. This is a tricky subject because I mean, so much of this is water under the bridge. Again, I, I, I had some disagreements with Mr. Gordy, and he was on the set. Michael was nav- again, Michael was navigating <laughs> uh, through a very tricky sort of cross current, you know. He had this very powerful producer on his shoulder and he had a vision about how he wanted to make this movie. And you know, Michael had sort of been I thought Michael was great because I had like loved his movie Cooley High ten years before. I mean when it was when it turned out that it was Michael Siltz directing this film, I was like, oh this is really cool. Um and Cooley High is right there, like where you guys are, isn't it? My dad went to Cooley High. My dad is from Detroit. Um, anyway, so, yeah, Michael and I were very close. And, you know, I, I was around for some of it. And at a certain point, it wasn't so much the writer isn't welcome. At a certain point, it was like, well, what, what am I doing here? I wasn't watching them make the movie that I really, really wanted to see get made or didn't think I did at the time. And, you know, there were new opportunities opening up for me. And I just, at a certain point, probably halfway through the shoot, maybe three quarters of the way, I just sort of stopped showing up. But, you know, I was there for, I was there for a lot of stuff. I remember the whole disco scene. I remember the fight on the street. 
there were so many things. I was there and I, and I wasn't there as much as I could say, which is, you know, true of, of other movies that I've done, you know, as a writer where I, I'd be there some of the time and then it becomes the director's thing. It all depends about, uh, on your relationship with the director, you know, on bird on a wire, Adam and I had, you know, he was a little more supportive of me, you know, directing my own stuff. We sort of collaborated on shot lists, but we didn't have a producer like Mr. Gordy sort of that we had to both be keeping our eye on. That was John Badham's show. Again, I wasn't sort of thrilled with the way that movie was going, but I sort of had learned that at a certain point, you just kind of shut up and learn, you know, whichever way it's going, you're going to learn something. What was it like working with uh, Rupert Hitzig as the uh, one of the producers? Rupert was great. Rupert was one of my favorite characters on the whole thing. I, look, I, I got along with all of these guys. Rupert was Rupert was a big part of. He was a real producer. I mean, you look at a lot of producers today, and you know, to me, you know, Rupert is like a real old school producer. Rupert was the producer of this movie. He he made the he made the movie happen. You know, I remember when Rupert, you know, Rupert, when he actually got the special effects of the glow, I remember he called me and he said, you are going to love this glow. This glow is awesome. He was so obsessed and so thrilled with that glow. And I just remember the, the sort of enthusiasm in his voice. And when I finally saw it on the screen, I went, oh, that's what Rupert was talking about. That is great. That is amazing. You know, and again, you watch it now and it's so old fashioned, but sparks flying and all this stuff. But, you know, in those days, it was a big deal. And that was, that was all Rupert. <laughs> and he held it together. You know, he, you'd have to ask him. I mean, if he wants to tell you certain stories, he'll tell you certain stories. For me, Rupert was an amazing guy. He, the guy treated me, he, he treated me the best, you know, Rupert's one of those guys. He knows that the writer is going to write more stuff and, you know, maybe he'll make some, maybe, maybe get, you get another job. I loved Rupert you know? and, and I loved Michael. I mean, the, those two guys were the best for me. I wish Linda had been around because I really loved Linda too. I wanted to uh, run a couple of rumors past you just to see <laughs> how much water they hold. <laughs> Okay. One of them that I read is that there was an effort to cut $2 million out of the budget. So you and Michael rewrote the script. And when you, uh, you fell asleep on a hotel bed and Michael cut 40 pages out of the script. But when you woke in the morning, you recreated all that stuff. It's a tin canned rumor that there are lots of elements of truth in that, but the narrative that's holding it together, that, that's holding what you told me together is, is not really the way it happened. It's a much funnier story, actually. We were using an old Commodore 64, and as I recall, the issue wasn't to cut $2 million out of the film. The issue was the, the script was running 135 pages. And what we were told to do was cut 35 pages. We weren't told to cut. Nobody was talking about money. I don't think it had anything to do with money. I think the studio at this point was worried about running time. They sort of got into this thing about, oh, pages, it's long. It's it's the kind of abstract nonsense that doesn't have anything to do with anything. But somebody said, it's too long. 
can they cut 35 pages? So yes, Michael and I kind of holed up at the Carlisle Hotel in New York. And I don't think one of us fell asleep. I don't remember any of that happening. I remember one of us pushing a button and like the whole thing sort of disappearing. And we kind of looked at each other and like, oh my God, what did we do? It wasn't like we recreated it. We we had to retype it. We had typed pages. We just had to sit and type it back into this machine that was so new to us at the time. Uh, there are much more interesting rumors and stories that no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was a very funny thing that Michael and I had always laugh about how we were there at the beginning of computers in the movie business and, and, and how literally you could hit the wrong key and have to retype the script. It wasn't like the idea disappeared. But the funnier part of that story is so that Michael and I sat in this room and, you know, we basically cut stage directions. We were trying to get the, page, the thing down to the hundred pages that they want without actually cutting anything out of the movie. That was our, that's the funny part of the story to me. Michael and I were going through the script and we'd read a stage direction that went on for, you know, an inch or two because it was describing a fight. And I would... I would say, Michael, you got this? He'd go, yeah, I got it. So we'd go, Leroy and show now fight. <laughs> and we cut a half a page. And we literally went through the script, just sort of trimming stage directions down to one sentence instead of a detailed, elaborate description of the action. And we literally did not change one other thing except cut out stage directions. We did not touch the structure. We did not touch a line of dialogue. The only thing we did was take out stage directions. And when we handed the script back in, they freaked out. They went, you guys have ruined the script. What did you do to this brilliant script? And we kind of looked at each other and we're like, what are you talking about? We didn't change anything. These are those old stories about the movie business. This is kind of the way it was. Some executive in some office was, was having a panic attack because some some reader had read the thing and went, oh my God, they've ruined the script. And we literally had not changed a single relevant word of anything that would have ended up on the screen. And then I, then they decided, oh, well, Lewis can't do this. So I think then they went out and hired some like Hollywood joke writer. That was the other rumor I was going to run past you. I heard that Bruce Valanche took a pass at this. It was either Bruce Valanche or it was Carl Gottlieb. It was one of those guys. I seem to remember it being Carl Gottlieb, but it could have been Valanche. To me, they're kind of the same guy, practically. And, you know, Bruce is actually a very good friend of my stepmother's, which is why I don't think it was Bruce, because Bruce and my stepmother have worked together on a lot of things. I, I, I think I would have known. Or maybe, you know, my stepmother knows all those guys. She knows all those. She was like Mel Brooks's writing partner for a while. So all those old Jewish sort of comedy writer guys, she's worked with all those guys. So I was hearing what was going on one way or the other. I knew what was going on. And I knew that, I also knew that not, Michael was also telling me, None of it's going to make any sense. None of these guys can do what you can do. And the script apparently went through some very cockamamie draft with, you know, where they changed the name of the master from, you know, what I think I had was like, I think the master was called One Hung Low in my first draft. 
and like it, either Valant or Gothi changed it to some dumb goy, right? Again, you know, that kind of humor. And it is some dumb goy to this day instead of one hung low, which was always the New York, you know, spoof of like, what do you call the master? You know, make a erotic joke out of it, you know? And then they came back to me like three months later and went, Oh my God, now the whole movie is destroyed. Can you come back and save the movie? And I was like, yeah, sure. Because, you know, computers. So I still have the thing that I wrote, you know. I mean, so again, literally, they came to me and hired me again to do a rewrite. And all I did was sort of put back kind of what I had in the first place. And finally, somebody said we were so close to production. Everybody went, yay, he saved it. It's great. It's perfect. Let's go. And... By this point, honestly, I had no idea what draft is what, who what, who wrote what. I, I've lost track by this point. <laughs> it was, uh, you know. And Michael was telling me, don't worry about it. Don't pay any attention to it. And this is what I'm saying. This is what Michael was always doing. If I had a sort of started to melt down, Michael would just kind of go, Lewis, don't worry about it. I know the movie you want to make. I'm going to make it. Don't worry about it. A lot of times I would just have to take a deep breath and go, okay, Michael's got it. <laughs> so ultimately, were you pleased with what ended up coming to the big screen? No, I was sort of a moving target. That being the first piece of my work that I had ever seen on screen, it struck me as being very different than what I had originally set out to make. But I also found it enjoyable. There are moments that I have to close my eyes and cover my ears and turn away from the screen. But... Overall, having just seen it six weeks ago with an audience, I was staggered as as a sort of like how well it holds up as a sort of a, you know, this artifact of a particular time and of a spirit. And it, it's remarkable to me. I mean, when I look at it now, I'm much more fond of it, I think, than I was at that particular moment in time. I had people like, you know, Michael and Jeremy and my sort of, team sort of saying, you know, listen, this is the way it goes. It could have been a lot worse, you know, and you don't have perspective when you're 25. I look at some of my, the other experiences that I had and The Last Dragon, you look back and you go, Last Dragon, they were right. The Last Dragon was not bad. Last Dragon is certainly much closer to what I wrote than Burr on a Wire was. How has it been over the years seeing how The Last Dragon has kind of infiltrated pop culture? You know, I'm thinking specifically of things like Buster Rhymes being shown up in one of his videos or just, you know, the some of the outfits that have kind of come through in other ways. And it, it, how is that for you being kind of the progenitor of this thing, the creator of it? Obviously, I love it. I mean, you know, I get a real big kick out of it whenever I see it. I don't think most people have any real awareness of me as the progenitor of the film. If you go to the Wikipedia page of the film. There is no mention of me on the entire page. There's been a deliberate sort of scrubbing of my role, and I find it funny that, you know, with this Blu-ray DVD release, people are asking me to talk about this again, and people are enjoying hearing these stories that no one has ever really heard them sort of the way they happen, because Michael doesn't talk, you know. Michael's more discreet than I am, probably a lot smarter than I am, too. But um, I don't care, so that's the thing. I'm, I'm not going to say anything bad about anybody. I mean, the truth is, you look back, and I think everybody's amazing. You know, I think the fact that they made the movie is amazing. And the, the fact that so many people still love the movie is amazing. 
My greatest hope, actually, what's what's kind of ironic, is that with all the movies that have been turned into Broadway musicals in the past, you know, few years, it actually seems like the time is coming that may actually allow me to do what I wanted to do in the first place, which is do it as a Broadway musical because I carved out the rights for myself at the very beginning because obviously nobody was thinking about Broadway musicals 30-something years ago, but I was. Now, you know, with people like Buster Rhymes, I don't know if it's going to be Buster Rhymes, but boy, would I love to get Jay-Z or Timbaland or one of these guys that, who, who, it, with, with whom this role, movie may have played a role, like it obviously did with Buster Rhymes, and go, yeah, let's do that as a Broadway musical. I think that would be a great way to introduce it to an entire new generation and to bring it to a, a Broadway demographic and bring all that multicultural stuff to Broadway, I think it would be the perfect ending to the whole thing. And then they'll probably make another movie after we do a Broadway show. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> Finally, they'll be free to make a sequel or a remake or whatever. I don't know. So what have you been up to lately? Oh, lots of different things. I kind of got bored with the movie business for a while and came back to New York and just wrote stuff that I wanted to write. I don't really have to worry. The good news is, you know, because of these movies, you know, I don't have to worry too much about money anymore. I'm not living Barry Gordy's life, but, but I have a really nice life in New York, and I have a new daughter, you know, that is a lot of fun, and then I have sort of more time to spend with than I did with my son. Right now, I mean, the reason I've been so sketchy with you with the emails, you know, I've written a play that we're about to do a pretty interesting sort of reading workshop of, and uh, so far it's gotten a pretty amazing response from the people that have visited and stopped in. And so that's going to happen in, in about two weeks in public, and you know we'll see what happens. Um, so, I, you know, I'm also writing, you know, I'm playing around with television now because television is where you can sort of tell interesting stories. I mean, I just think the movie business is not very interesting right now. There's, there are very few ideas that pop into my head now and go, yeah, that should be a movie or that could be a movie. You know, it's like there are huge movies and there are tiny movies. And when you've sort of done it as often as, you know, as much as I have, I mean, not that I've done it like Michael or other people, it's, you don't necessarily, you have to really be in love with an idea to, to try to make it, you know, for $500,000 now, which is, you know, so I, I think Dustin Hoffman just said this recently, and, you know, he was talking about uh, The Graduate, you know, and how that was a small movie back then. They shot that for a hundred days. You can't get a hundred days to shoot anything but like Avatar now. You're shooting movies in 14 days and you can't really can't really do you can do a great hour of television in 10 or 14 days yeah but i don't know i think the movie business is in one of those periods it'll come back but right now it's in a it's in a tricky time and so television is interesting i spend you know about half of each year in mexico writing I have a house in mexico and uh, i have a nice life and i'm thinking about this broadway musical i'm thinking about this play uh thinking about another pilot that I'm writing. 
and it just kind of, you know, there are other things going on that I don't really want to talk about. Actually, there are other really interesting things. There was a Louis Venosta who is credited in with special thanks in the whole wide world. The um, movie about uh, the guy who wrote Conan. Was that you? Yeah, that was more because, you know, I was... Look, that's when I was producing and, you know, uh, the editor was a very good friend of mine and the director, you know, was very close to the editor. I don't even remember exactly some of the things that I did on Whole Wide World. I made some phone calls. I helped out with certain things. I mean, there, you know. I did less on that movie than I did on other movies where I should have gotten thanks that are much <laughs> more renowned movies. But those guys were very sweet, and they they just did that. I didn't know that they would do that. It was, you know, that, that's just in those days you helped out your friends, and every once in a while, somebody you know thanked you at the end of a movie. I mean, you never, you know, that's never anything that you expect or. Or do these are just your friends and you're helping them so you know again i could tell you hours and hours of movies that i was involved in helping them get made because i i was i was one of these guys who really liked supporting other filmmakers i mean it was definitely one of the things that took me off track much of the time i would really get involved with like okay look who's doing this and let's figure out how to get this done and we would. And I enjoyed that. I enjoyed the life of it. You know, I guess because of the way I grew up around it, the end results, when it was always really about process and about the moment for me, I have some really, you know, great friends who've had amazing sort of careers and, um, and that I played any little role in any of them is was much more fun being there than like, you know, seeing anything on IMDb Pro. I never liked repeating myself. So that was another, you know, Hollywood bad thing. You know, you do a movie like The Last Dragon and then everybody wanted me to do The Last Dragon again. You know, I mean, I wrote all these sort of pop musicals for a couple of years. And I was like, no, I don't want to do this. And then I would say, okay, I'm going to do a sort of a serious Hollywood kind of action movie. And I decided to do Burr on a Wire. Then everybody wanted me to do Burr on a Wire for the next years and I didn't want to do that anymore so how dare you try to be original <laughs> no I know it's ridiculous I mean you know I get teased by a lot of my friends you said no to what you know I won't even go into some of those things you know some of the things that I turned down because I, I was too busy doing this little tiny whole wide world over here <laughs> and told Spielberg no I don't want to do that I'm not interested in that when the last dragon came out, how was it received? It was very well received. It was a, you know, as Mr. Gordy would say, it's a hit. It was a hit. You know, it was. Uh, I mean, at the time, I think. It, I mean, it had a huge opening weekend for it, entirely unexpected, and had a high per screen average, and it held on for quite a while for what everybody expected. I mean, I think those of us involved with the movie expected the movie to do well. I don't remember if I had actually seen a finished cut of the film, you know, until the premiere. But, you know, it's strange because now that I think about it, I mean, I was at the premiere in L.A., but I actually have a better memory of, like, going to see it, you know, in Times Square with all my New York friends. So maybe I went out to L.A. for that premiere and then flew back to New York. Because I really remember 
sitting in, I wanted to see it in Times Square with a New York audience. That was my thing. And, you know, I, I, I invited about, you know, 20 of my best friends and we all went to see it. But the premiere was fun in LA. I mean, that was kind of a big scene. I think, yeah, I wasn't living there then. I don't think I had moved out there yet. In that list of things that you turned down over the years, was a sequel, like, did they immediately want to turn around and do Last Dragon 2? Uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. Again, because of my sort of, you know, not especially having gotten along with Mr. Gordy, uh, there was actually a deal made with me because I had the right of first refusal to do, you know, a sequel. And they kind of were like, well, Lewis, if you insist upon this, a sequel is never going to get made. So make a deal so somebody else can write the sequel. And I was like, all right pay me some money and they did and I basically gave that I, I actually hadn't seen this contract until recently I, I, I didn't even remember this until we were just sort of checking on this on the musical rights um, but yeah there was a separate deal where they basically you know we came to an agreement where I waived my rights to sort of to stop them from doing a sequel which is what Mr. Gordy wanted he wanted to pursue it on his own, and he did, and it never happened. You can draw your own conclusions. You know, I think the reality is nobody quite really understands how I did what I did, and I'm not sure I understand exactly how I did what I did, except that, you know, that character is very much me. Tymok brought a lot to the role, and I, I think Tymok is really great, but, you know, that character was me at 22. I mean, he's black, but it's a whole multi, this whole multi-racial thing of mine. Um, that, and my particular sense of humor, it worked in this movie. I had this view of New York. The movie was as much about New York as it was about anything else. It's about the Kung Fu mythology as I experienced it as a teenager on 42nd Street. If you look at that movie, it's about a it's about a time as much as it is a particular story. Could you have made a sequel? Could I have made a sequel? Absolutely. I mean, I, I had ideas for sequels. I probably still have notebooks in my office now for sequels, I you know, ideas I sketched out. But nobody's ever come to me to write a sequel. I know they have been written. I know drafts have been written going back as far as the 80s and then again a few years ago. Uh, but nobody ever shows them to me. Nobody ever asks me. I'm not exactly sure why. I have my suspicions, but that may be my own sort of ridiculous paranoia. I don't know. I, I, I honestly wish that I could somehow contribute to, to, to giving the audience what they want. But, you know, somebody said to me at the screening, how would you do it today? And I hadn't even I hadn't thought about it in so long as a movie. It's like, would you try to recapture that tone? That would be very difficult to do. You know, I mean, that movie, I don't know that I could write that movie today because I'm not the kid who wrote that movie, you know, 30 years ago, 35 years ago. Um, I know how to I think I know how to do the Broadway musical, but that's a lot easier to play with a period and play with costumes and play with music and play with dance and play with all this stuff. I think in a certain way it's much easier to make to do it for the stage now than it would be to do it for the screen. Although, you know, again, if somebody really said to me, Let's do this, you know, I, I bet I'd figure out something. Because I, I, I love that character. 
you'd have to come up with a really interesting idea. I don't think you could just throw it together and go, you know, it's this Kung Fu movie, because that's not what it was. When people ask you about The Last Dragon, what do they tend to focus on? What are they curious about the most? Mostly people are just kind of fascinated when they look at me and, you know, and they, and they understand that I wrote it. They, there's this disconnect of how could, I don't understand, because I guess they didn't know me. I'm really moved when people are still moved by it. It's one of those things where its fandom has a life of its own now that, you know, I don't feel like I'm a part of. And I think that that's perfectly fine. The, the, it's become its own, you know, little Comic-Con thing. And they go around and they, they sign things. And, you know, and I think that that's spectacular. I'm always moved when people come up to me and say, this movie changed my life. This movie put me on a course, you know, from being one thing to being, you know, this thing that I like that I am today. I find that extraordinary. I, that's never something that I would have sort of expected. I mean, to me, you know, it was the allegory of the deer looking for the scent of musk. I mean, it's a very simple idea, but those very simple ideas carry with them, you know, a lot of power. All I did was channel that that myth into a story, and I'm not even sure I did it consciously. You know, that's the sort of fun thing about what we do and why I say I kind of enjoy the process. I don't mind going down blind alleys and because every once in a while you stumble upon something that, you know, you could never have gotten to had you used a map. I don't know. I love that it moves people. I love that there are, what, 140,000 Facebook page fans of this this guy's Facebook fan page. I think it's mind-blowing. And I hope if I do the musical, they all give money to the Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> oh, it would be fun. I mean, the irony, though, is that, you know, it would probably take a Jay-Z to make it happen, and then there probably would be no Kickstarter, because Jay-Z would go, no, let's do this movie. It's a tax deduction to me. <laughs> you know? Look, that would, again, that would be a dream come true. Either way, kickstarting it, Jay-Z in it, you know, Dr. Dre in it, I don't know, you know, Timbaland, Pharrell, there's so many. There are other people that I won't mention that I've actually talked to about it, and people are, are interested in this idea. I'm just trying to figure out how to, how to sort of really breathe some life into it. It may take a little while, but I think it'll be... It's hard to resist. I mean, it's such a... It's such a how do you lose with The Last Dragon on Broadway? How do you lose? It's got this huge cult following. Perfect musical. It, it, it is a musical. Film is a musical. So, I don't know. It's just a question of when somebody else sort of... When that, you know, critical mass happens and every, when everybody else gets the idea, you know, saying, hey, let's do The Last Dragon as a musical. <laughs> so... That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Thank you, Mr. Venosta. And now here is the star of The Last Dragon, Timac. How did you get into acting, and which came first, the martial arts or the acting? You know, my mother would always remind me. She she had me in a couple of uh, things when I was a kid, dazzling commercial, when I was, like, a baby. <laughs> so I must be uh, acting first, but I started martial arts when I was six uh, with karate and um, stopped and started again when I was around 11. Had you expressed interest in martial arts, or did your folks just figure this is going to be a good thing for yeah, you? For Yeah, no. Um, what happened was my father uh, was picked on as a kid, 
and he wanted my brother and I to study martial arts. Uh, his uh, close friend was a karate expert, and uh, um, yeah, so he he had a strain with him when we were little. Now you said you were doing commercials. What other kind of stuff were you doing when you were a kid? Well, no, my mother only had a me and a couple of commercial auditions, and I ended up getting that Vaseline commercial. I was like a baby, like, you know, a few months, I guess. So you didn't do any acting after that for a little while? No, I only started acting after The Last Dragon. Okay, so how did The Last Dragon come to you? At, at the time, you know, everybody in competition and the karate tournament circuit and uh, even in everywhere, they were talking about the movie and they uh, were saying that I should go up on it and... Uh, uh, I eventually uh, uh, got to audition, but I didn't do well because I didn't uh, know how to do cold reading. And long story short, I ended up really depressed, but I went back and auditioned later, and then uh, a few, about a month or so later, and I ended up getting the role. Now, when you're growing up and you're into martial arts and all this, who are kind of the people that you look up to? Mostly the movie stars and, and Chinese movie stars. You know, short love movies and uh, Bruce Lee. Of course, Sonny Chiba. Uh, at that time, there were, you know, Jim Kelly and Ron Van Cleef, and then Spider-Man, Batman, Superman. <laughs> I was, a, you know, every day I would watch these fanatically, you know. You're kind of like a natural when it comes to being in The Last Dragon. Well, I had a lot of experience seeing how these people would behave, these different, um, I guess, heroes, the superhero characters. And uh, they all had different personalities, but uh, they did uh, know how to move. And that was like what I knew I had to do as a martial artist, learn about uh, technique. What did you want to bring to the role of Leroy Green? I had no experience, so I, I just uh, wanted to listen to see what they were telling me, you know, because I, you know, I didn't know anything about acting. And uh, I did remember... Uh, from watching films, it was like, uh, okay, you know, a guy has to communicate, and uh, uh, it, but I had no experience, so they had an acting coach there. I, I, I seemed to pretty much feel at home with everything, you know? Uh, it was pretty natural. Yeah. So you had to learn it all right then, like all the blocking and how many takes and all this kind of stuff and redoing your, your positioning and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, blocking came easy because of martial arts training. I was able to... Um, you know, the, the, the footing and being able to see the blocking and uh, all the movement and timing, that that was easy for me. Uh, and then martial arts ethics and hard work. Uh, so, you know, doing a lot of takes or anything like that didn't seem to be such an issue for me. The, the, the main thing was to be believable. You know, uh, the character was uh, different than me in a lot of ways, very similar to me in a lot of ways, but that was the challenge, just to try to really believe what I was doing. So what was it like on set? It was great. It was great. All the um, talented people around me were fantastic. They, they, they all had a lot of talent, and uh, it was um, really like walking into a comic book every day. <laughs> you have so many... Well, you're obviously the star of the show. You're the crux of everything. You get to interact with pretty much every actor that's in the film and so many different acting styles when it comes to, you know, a Julius Carey versus a Christopher Murney kind of thing or Vanity, who wasn't necessarily coming from an acting background either. But, yeah, that must have been interesting to see all the different styles of acting going on. Yeah, well, I didn't know anything about styles of acting, you know. For me, it was just talking to people. 
now that I'm a trained actor, you're not really supposed to use technique until you have to, you know? Basically, you know, you're talking and in the character. So it was really like I said before, it was like believing the character, uh, believing that I am this person or that I'm believable as this person. So uh, they they really uh, good at, you know, Michael Schultz and Barry Gordy. Uh, they're really good at explaining to me what I had to do in a scene. Once I knew what I had to do, then it was just uh, talking and, and relating to the people in the, in the, in the movie. Now, did you get to do a lot of stunt work, or did they have stuntmen there for that? They had both, you know. Um, some of the stunt guys had to do some things, and then, uh, you know, I, I was really busy with so much, and um, they, they they were a little concerned if I would get hurt, you know. So there were a couple of things that happened, you know. What was it like seeing yourself on screen for the first time? You know, I, I don't remember really. I remember the first day on set when I showed up. It was interesting. It was like I just walked in. It was a... I believe it was the um, breakfast scene with my one, my parents and my little brother and a little sister and and they had me in another room and they were, had a camera on me and a light on me and it felt very comfortable. Uh, but I, I don't quite remember. I know I saw the film at the premiere in Los Angeles. It's the first time I saw it. My family members were there uh, and uh, Barry Gordy, obviously, and celebrities were there like Diana Ross and, uh, and Motown crowd. And I, I remember... Uh, I had a crush on uh, Cheryl Lab when I was a kid, so she was there, and she. <laughs> so it was really funny. That it was great. It was great. So, how was the film received when it came out? It was received really well. I, it's just uh, there was some political mess that was happening back then when Barry Gordy was really trying to push it uh, in the marketing area, because uh, unfortunately, in 1985, uh, TriStar, you know, the executive he was dealing with, didn't think that. It would be marketed well to white a white crowd, and that was that hurt the film. Even though the film did pretty well, it it hurt the films uh, in the in the box office uh, uh, because of that. They were only marketing to a black crowd. For you personally, what did this movie do for you? Did this help open doors for other gigs? Well, I was under a contract with Motown, so I I didn't know what was coming my way, uh, and then I eventually got out of the contract, and it was a a real uh, roller coaster ride of how to get work, and they didn't know what to do with me and how to place me. And, uh, you know, and I, I wasn't good at auditioning at all because uh, I needed to really learn about that. Auditioning is a completely different process than actually acting in a role when you're doing a film or a, or a show on, on theater or TV. Uh, it's a completely different animal. So uh, I, I wasn't good at auditioning. Uh, I didn't have much direction or, you know, I just had to uh, find my way. You know, I'm a, I was a slow learner, but I, I did uh, understand that it's a craft, and I began learning the art of acting and, and doing theater a lot, and, and here we are today, and it's, you know, things looking good. Was there talk of a sequel when this came out? Yeah, they had a... I, I actually, I have a, a an autobiography I'm finishing up on, and that'll be out. Uh, it's a publishing under in Cognito, the C O R Cognito uh publishing. That'll be out in March. And uh that I explained detail of uh everything, uh what happened and the uh they had ideas of doing sequels but there was some issues that happened, you know. Now what's the name of the autobiography? Right now it's the working title is Time Out uh, The Last Dragon. But it's subject to change. 
Well, you know, I'm working with a publisher, so we'll see. We only have to agree. Yeah, I mean, it's my first. I've written screenplays, but I've never written a a book. You know, so this is my first first uh, go at it. Yeah, and what's that been like? Because now you've embraced the whole idea of the acting and the martial arts still, and you know, the writing and all this. You know, you've gone way beyond being Leroy Green. What's that been like for you as as your career has progressed? Yeah, it's, it was like a lot of um, actors. It was out of necessity. It's like a, realizing that you have to get behind yourself as an actor, even though there are fans, you know, and there's a lot of fans born even more lately of The Last Dragon. They're all over the place, you know. I had to really learn that this is a business and and you have to really get out there and uh, connect. So it's, it's about building, building relationships and getting support uh, for what you have going on. I didn't understand the business side of it. You know, the relationships sometimes are political and sometimes it's best that someone speaks for you. So there's a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of that going on, you know. Now, you said that when you were coming up, you were a big fan of um, different martial artists, including Ron Van Cleef, who was actually on The Last Dragon. What was that like when you met him? Yeah, he was very supportive. He, he, um, I trained with him away into my twenties, early thirties, and um, he was just very supportive of um to have Yosente, uh on the set because there was a lot of uh, guys that actually didn't want me to to get the role, and they're working on the film too, so they weren't uh, too pleasant to be around, you know. So you know, so it was good to have someone to keep an eye out for my best interest as well. When people come up to you and see you on the street, recognize you as Leroy Green, what do they generally say to you? They uh, usually seem very inspired and very moved, you know. And yeah, sometimes they're laughing, and ultimately, I, I you know, I've never experienced anything that you know. It's always uh, they're just very excited, very excited. Like they never expected me to look young. They never expected me to to, to, to see me as if I'm living in a cave somewhere. <laughs> it's funny. Now you've been going to some of these anniversary screenings that have been happening lately. What's that like seeing this with an audience again so many years later? Yeah, it's really uh, phenomenal. You know, every, they've all been sold out all the time everywhere I go. Uh, and they're just sharing with me their, their love for the film, you know. Uh, and I'm just very uh, blessed and moved by it, you know. Um, very lucky to be in a film uh, 30 years later is that people are still extremely passionate about, you know, and the Blu-ray comes out on Tuesday. So, you know, the, uh, conversations and interviews and, and there'll be more about the film. Uh, it looks really good in the remastered version. One of the things that I see on your filmography, and I'm not sure if this is still happening or if it ever was, because you can never trust when it comes to the internet. Yeah. Um, a movie called Enter the Fist and the Golden Fleecing. That's actually something that I'm about to do. A couple of friends, right? Oliver Stone's son is named Sean Stone. Alex, Alex Rath is a young actor, director, martial artist. And they wrote this film together and they wanted to have me uh, towards the later part of the movie. And uh, we're, we're in uh, creative talks around the scenes right now. But I'll be uh, leaving Tuesday to go work with them over there. It's pretty exciting. Ernie Reyes has a little bit too. Oh, yeah. Another, uh, another alumnus, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very good move. 
Yeah, I'd read that Roddy Piper was involved with it, so with his recent passing, I wasn't yeah. sure if it was still happening. Yeah, that gave him a little... Yeah, yeah. there's so many talented people I, I want to work with, though, you know, serious actors and Gary Oldman on down, you know, there's a lot of serious actors, a lot of fun people like, like Roddy Roddy Piper, you know, The Rock, you know, what's his name? There's, there's a lot of characters out there that I love to work with. So you're working on the autobiography. Is that pretty well wrapped up and you're waiting for the publishing part of it or are you still yeah, working I, I on that? Wrote it, I wrote it already. We're just touching it up. You know, me and the editor are working on uh, cleaning up grammar, fixing, making it, uh, you know, as, as, as good as it can possibly get. Can you tell me a little bit about I've Seen Things? Yeah, that was that came out of uh, me just wanting to work and wanting to create a film. I wrote it as as first as a a short film, and then everybody told me that'd be good as a full length feature. So I wrote it as a full length feature. I uh, shot some of it, but then I ended up falling into this other film, uh, The Professor. And when when because I I I never produced a film before as far as raising the money. So I, there was a little stall. And while I was in the stall phase, I was like, okay, well, I got this film for the professor that I want to um, complete. And now they're both complete. Uh, however, I have not yet taken on producing them or having them produced. So that's one of the things that um, they'll be looking to in the upcoming month. I mean, the, with all the, the, the um, passion for The Last Dragon... I think a follow-up to the film can be done, you know? It just has to be done. You know? I don't think a remake is good because a lot of fans don't want to see that. But uh, I think a follow-up to the last thing will work. Can you tell me about the, the story about you meeting Federico Fellini? When I was a kid, my you know parents, uh, they they dealt with some um, issues in America that were you know, biracial. And they thought they'd be good to visit Europe and see a different type of sophistication they were friends with Federico Fellini, and uh, they said he, they wanted to go visit. And they, they, he basically, I saw him. And I just remember him being such a nice, you know, uh, bigger than life character, you know. And uh, he he grabbed me and he, he was showing me around, you know. And I, I, it was the most beautiful looking set. It was like a, a museum, you know, with all the actors, like lots and lots of actors uh, having lunch and. And it was really amazing. Really, I never forget the look of the costumes, of, you know, and, and, and the set. And, you know, Vincent Minnelli was there, Liza Minnelli's father. It was a lot of legends walking around. I didn't even know until later. Yeah, that must have been hard for you because you grew up, what, late 60s, early 70s, and having a biracial parent was definitely not the norm at that time. Right, right. Well, my parents were around a lot of um, you know, bohemian lifestyle artists. So their their crowd were cool. It was, you know, more other crowds that weren't so cool. And then the, you know, finding a nice house or apartment or, you know, they had a lot of struggles. You know? I'm so glad that that has hopefully changed over the years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of change, but obviously there's more, you know, to be done. Is there a place for folks to kind of keep up with you, find out announcements about the next movie, about the autobiography or any of that? Sure. Um, I have an Instagram page, I have a uh, Facebook fan page and a Twitter and, and I'm, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be around. Um, and I, and I always post on my website appearances. It's 
every uh, social media is I am timeout. So it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, backslash I A M T A I M A K. And the website, I am timeout.com. Cool. Timeout, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate this. Yes, thank you. And I uh, look forward to the future. Things are looking great. All right, that was Ty Mack, and coming up here is Mr. Mike Starr. Uh, last year, I got across this and watched my segue to try to get myself out of trouble here, but uh, Last was Dragon was like my fifth film. Worse than, thank you, okay. Oh, yeah. I have yeah. a man who appreciates me. Last Dragon was right after The Natural, where I was learning mm-hmm. to improvise, which is another crazy way I got into that. I went to the tryout and clowned around. I can't play baseball, but Ari Levinson just made me a designated ad-libber, and he taught me a lot about ad living, which would, I was just telling George Gallo, the great writer director, and I said, you know, Barry Levinson, what I learned from him, I implemented in Goodfellas, how to get things in a certain amount of time and ad lib on camera, and I felt totally comfortable. And thanks to Martin Scorsese, of course, too, and Robert De Niro, really making me so comfortable. But, but uh, when we did Last Dragon, what was interesting was that Chris Murney and I, and uh, certain characters, I'm not, I wouldn't put down anyone else, but we kind of, we said we're in a cartoon, you know, we're fun, you know, so we, we wanted, we were doing a comedy and we amped it up a bit and uh, Julius Carey the third, rest his soul, played the Shogun of Harlem, show enough. <laughs> he was, you know, we all had a, just a party with it, you know? So it was back to, back to doing things a certain way, but it was, Jesus, it was a chance for me to do a comedy and play a kind of wacky character, you know. Uh, actually, the original script, I think I was supposed to get killed. I wanted a shot, and very gaudy. Now, you have to understand, again, at one point we had like four brothers, four of us living in a, uh, one, one bedroom or something, you know, depending who was away in the Marine Corps, who's out of college, but we used to listen in the 60s to Motown when it was created. So you have to understand, I'd be listening to this music and uh, my brother Jimmy uh, had turned me on to a lot of Motown and then other music, um, similar, if I could say similar music, when uh, he was in the, uh, the service and he, he said, oh, this was our favorite thing. And I got so much into it. And you'd always read on the back of the, they had the albums in those days, there'd be liner notes. And you'd always see Barry Gordy. And here he is, the, as they say, the founder of the first one, this first African-American business empire. And here I am on a set with him and he was fascinating and no nonsense. And he came up to me and said, he never called me Mike. <laughs> he called me rock. He said, rock, you too lovable. I'm going to tell you right now, everybody's going to fall in love with you. So you're too lovable for us to kill you. So we have to, and even like when I got hit, any of the stunt fights, it always had to be a comical thing, like the uh, Leo, the young fella, uh, had to kick me in the balls, you know. We, we found comical ways, Frank Ferrara, the stunt coordinator. The props in it, Jimmy Mazzola, one of the most famous prop men, he had a, uh, he did the shark tank, or whatever that's supposed to be, a piranha tank. People always ask me about that, that in the glow. Well, he did, he had this water, like, sucking out, you know, so we had to do that. That was so much fun, but they decided they had to reshoot this fight scene. They really wanted really cool stuff, except they wanted me to just like not, you know, get hurt in a comical way. And I don't know if you remember in a film, I just 
kind of accidentally get hit with a chair over my head. You know, so there's no, like, the, it was interesting. Barry Gordy, I mean, it's really sharp. Certain people, Barry Gordy, Kevin Costa, would, they would make adjustments, like Kevin Costa did to him, and tell me about what I was going to look like and be. And if you go with it, sometimes they seem to know what they're talking about, and it paid off, you know? They craft the whole thing for you, along with the directors, of course. But uh, uh, with it was interesting because you start learning maybe what kind of persona you have on camera, what you radiate, and then, again, you to shut that off when you have to play someone really horrible. Sometimes if you can shut it off on film, uh, if that makes any sense. But uh, it, when they did that, they had to hit me with a chair. And it was a last-minute thing. It wasn't something that, you know, many times you plan stunts over three days or two weeks before. So Jimmy said, Mike, I need you to help me out here. Now, I know you know a little, you play ball and martial arts, this and that, you know, all these other people around. I wasn't saying anything that I did anything. You know, they, were, they had some amazing people on. So I just, I said, well, I can get out of my own way, I think, I hope. He said, well, I'm going to take a real chair, glue it loosely, but you got to get your arm up in time. <laughs> Along with the stunt coordinator, Frank Ferrara said, you got to, you got to block that. So it was really actually a funny thing. And I, I just got my arm up in time. I get hit in there. The chair breaks over me and I do like a comical spin, I think, or a fall. And, uh, that's, that's my, I'm, I'm segueing. Okay. I think it's a lot of green tea here. I'm working on. I'm sorry. So just, just ask, fire those questions. Interrupt me anytime I'm going, uh, I have a great habit of going out into the cosmos and disappearing on people when they ask me a question, you know? What was that working relationship like with you and Chris Murney and Faith Prince? You were in a lot of scenes together. <laughs> Boy, Faith Prince. How about her? Huh? I mean, like, every now and then I'd run into her. She turned into this Broadway star. And I don't know if that was her first film or what, but she was very cool. You just knew you were with a pro with her. And Chris Murney, I don't know if you know, he does... He was speaking of Slapshot. He was the goalie, if you know the Slapshot film with the, you know Paul Newman. Well, Paul Newman, they go by, your wife eats the rug. I always tell people in the NHL, my friends, that, that was my, that's my friend, Chris Murray. He was playing the goalie. And Chris and I, all we did was laugh. There was one point he had to yell at me because I couldn't stop laughing because we would throw in little bits, you know, and uh, like when there's like a big action sequence, I did this whole thing. He says, give me the gun. Give me the gun. Cool. You, you know, we did like almost having a Costello stuff or old Waterville stuff. I'm like, yeah, well, give me that me. And I would start laughing. He says, you big goof. Would you just shut up and do the scene? We had more fun. I met him. I met him at the audition. There's very few auditions I've seen like Chris Murray. He's a big voiceover dad, by the way. You know, just cartoons and he has a, uh, his a son and a daughter in the business. His daughter, I mean, they, I think they all look serious. His daughter's a, a Broadway star, I believe, and his son's doing well. But he, I accidentally met him. <laughs> this is another one. Through my brother. My brother was friends with a great actor in college, Ed Dennehy, who was Brian Dennehy's brother. And Brian wasn't even acting yet. He had a, he was friends with Chris Money in Summerstock. And I met Chris Money when I was like 18. Here I am, and he was insane then. And he told me this classic joke that I would tell for the longest time. And here I am, maybe, geez, is it like 
was like 15 years later, he walks in this room. <laughs> and they, they could not, they could, I might as well tell you this story because he was just joking, but he literally was on a vacation in Jamaica or somewhere in the Caribbean. And Michael Schultz, the director, is there. And it looks like, I, you know, I've got it. I'm pretty sure that I might have it. And they're matching me up with a, an older brother, which a lot of times people don't get that he's the older brother, you know, that they, they think I'm just the henchman. So he comes in the room and goes, hi, what are we doing here? And I've never, to this day, I've never seen anyone behave like this with a sense of humor. I've seen people have attitudes, but he came in and said, what do you want from me? What are we doing here? You realize that 12 hours ago, I was, <laughs> I was laying on my back in Jamaica, something like that, laying on a smoking pot. He said something like that, or, or, or he said something like taking mescaline or some joke like that. He goes, staring at, staring at the, now you have to understand, this is like my, you know, my, I've done maybe two films or three films, right? And I've auditioned for commercials and, you know, you're taught all these things to do. I had all this theater training. He goes, yes, I'm, I dropped medical and I was staring at the sun on the beach, beaches of Jamaica wondering, will this hurt my eyes? The whole room was like, their mouths were open. I'm standing there, you know, trying to be as polite. I, he goes, yeah. And he just started rattling this monologue. But I do remember that. Right? I see him, I tell him that. He goes, yes. No. So I finally said, you don't give a fuck, do you? He goes, yeah, what the big guy said? The big guy's right. I don't give a fuck. And I said, so let's get this. You want me? And I was just like, how does this guy do this? And he was just perfect in it, right? So later on, he grabs me. We go out to coffee. He says, listen, do not, you know, like they say, don't do this at home. He said, do not do what I did. He said, I make a shit of money doing goofy, funny voices on, uh, on voiceover commercials and cartoons. So I can go in like that. I don't want you to behave like that. He told me. So that was the beginning of Chris Murney taking me under his wing. So we did a. <laughs> he even one time. Uh, <laughs> there's a, a line in the movie. I mean, uh, when the ninja, when uh, Bruce Leroy comes in, he throws the stars, the shuriken, whatever the word is for it. Throws you know, and all the stuntmen who have guns, and he goes, no guns. I don't know if you remember, he comes in, that's the big fight scene we have around the shark tank and everything. So anyway, I just ad-libbed, and Chris Murray just appreciated any humor. He was just, he's, he's so brilliant, I gotta tell you. I haven't seen him in about a year or so, but he, <laughs> I just ad-libbed in that goofy voice I do, you know, the, when he comes in and the, throws all the stars, everyone's stunned and he's dressed like a ninja. And <laughs> I turn to Chris Murney and I go, did you order out? Right. You know, like, <laughs> did you order out? And fucking Chris Murney lost it. He was, uh, no, I didn't order out. Please don't get these guys and this and that. Well, I think it was the direct, someone came up and said, you can't say that. So you're making fun of it or whatever, you know, it's, you know, making it a comedy. I, we thought it was. So they wouldn't let me say it. We had to reshoot the scene. So Chris Murdy says, watch me, Mike. So he goes, all right, get this guy. Who the hell is this guy? And I didn't order out anyway. So something like that. I didn't order out. He snuck the line in and it made the movie. He just ran them together. So yeah, every day was just loads of laughs, you know, and, uh, 
You know, I say that humorously. I don't know what Chris's habits were, but at least he, <laughs> he did say that in an audition. I mean, I'd said some things that maybe were not true, that were a jest, but uh, could get me in trouble. But it's many years ago, and he was just he's just a delight to work with. And uh, and you, you know what? He it was also, I learned about watching him. He was experienced, and he was a guy from the theater who was doing film, who was still doing a lot of theater, and... Work. We we had a, a reunion on the show Ed. He came and guested on it when I was on the show Ed, starring Tom Cavanaugh and Julie Bowen. And I watched him, you know, just simple things like you know you have to do another take or a thing with a gun or a thing in a fight, you know, or just been soaked in water. I watched how he prepared for a take. You know, I don't mean like uh, psychologically or anything, but just how to get himself settled or matching something. You know what I mean? Matching. Uh, what you just did, which helped the editor and helped the director and helped the film. I just, how he made it look effortless and, and flowed into the next scene. Does that make sense? I, I just watched him. He knew, you know, he would communicate with the director or, or different people on the crew. You got me here, you know, and, and not, not obnoxiously, but the help, you know, to be part of it. So it, it was giving me good habits and faith. Prince was just, we just, oh man, I'm glad you asked about her. <laughs> Because she was just, and she winds up working with all these great people that I know that have worked with, you know, I was lucky enough to work with later on, like Nathan Lane, you know, and whatnot. But she's just, you know, what are they going to call her? <laughs> they called you, you lost rock every fight you got. The great white helpless they called you. Oh, man. I, I have to tell you, we left. And the nice thing about that job, you know, I, when I broke into business, in my neighborhood, and I'm still, I talked to him, he called me yesterday on my birthday, I, there's a fellow named John Smith who's a lighting and electrician and also generated a man in special effects on things like Josie's work with the best people, and me and him are best friends. And back in the 70s, he used to say, you know, and I said, oh, I'll get into the business eventually. And he used to help me in every way and always give me advice and do a lot of things for me and we're still friends and he's still thriving and and a gen in his early 80s, you'd think he was 60. And John was the best boy. And Gene Engels, who's da- who worked on The Godfather, and his dad was famous. Gene is one of the most famous gaffers, which, of course, you know, is the head, head lighting and electrician. All these guys, I knew them. You have to say, I, I was trying to get day plays. I knew them socially. Like Teamsters, I knew. Grips. So... Through John, I had met all these people and a couple of neighborhood people I knew. So it was a funny thing. I'd be on the set and everybody knew me. I don't know if that makes sense. It made life so much easier to the point. Like I was living in Queens. We'd be in Manhattan. And Jimmy Dillinger or this other fellow, Artie, they were all electricians would give me rides. You know, yeah, driving back and forth and everybody would look out for me. And the great thing was, you know, I started like things like I instituted which the Cohen brothers loved, and I snuck in a few films. I did a thing called the rat face, where I would squint my eyes and look up, squint my nose, and we would sneak it in in movies. And they got a big kick out of it. So it was like an inside joke for the crew. And then later on, other people, and the Cohen brothers even loved it. I snuck it in a scene. <laughs> and the, the crew would prank me, though, which I would learn later on. It's like when people watch this, some people do it. They would do things like uh, Jeannie Ingalls would come up to me and say, well, you don't mind heights, do you? I said, what? Oh, no, you're going to be cabled in. Don't worry. And I go, what? And he pointed to the rafters of this place we were shooting and said, so don't hang you up that old hole, right? 
and they were pranking me, you know, or I'd be driving, uh, John Smith would just laugh all the time. Smitty, he would just laugh. He'd, and we'd be driving, uh, across the 59th street bridge. And, uh, this fella, Jimmy Dills, one of the electricians would say, that water's, well, they give you a wetsuit. What? Oh, the water's, uh, it's not that cold. But you can, you're a great swimmer and everything, and you've done scuba and what. I said, what are you talking about? Well, oh, I got to throw you in the water. So that was, yeah, the, that was, it was, the, the film was a whole big event. <laughs> and Timac and Vanity, and uh, you take people like uh, Ronnie Van Cleef, who I saw on some special, uh, I don't know if I was, I was watching his, I think in the Caribbean teaching career, but Ronnie Van Cleef was Timac's teacher. So, you had all, he was the greatest, and he was a legend in New York already, and then they had a fellow from California and Torrance, and then you had uh, Frank Ferrara had a crew of guys, and uh, Peter, who wound up, jeez, uh, he wound up, I think, he coordinated so many famous films, and you're watching people start out, because I'm in denial at that time, you know, so when I get this message, oh, they want to talk about what time that calls me up, and says that, oh, well, we have the anniversary. And I go, what? Yes, the 30th anniversary. I go, really? <laughs> you know, I sound like my relatives or when I was a kid, all the people would say, geez, it goes like a shot, you know? But uh, so I, I still get stopped. I got, oh, I know I was so The day I got the email that you wanted to do this, my wife and I were in Maui and we drove up to this volcano in this crater. And on the way down, there's some really cool place with a great view. And I'm not sure what this guy's ethnic background was. It was interesting. I just, you know, it was just a person of color came up to me. I'm not sure, local or whatever, whatever. But he, he came up to me and said, I mean, as I walked in, he said, I just want to tell you, I, oh, that's supposed to but I just love The Last Dragon. I said, really? And I wanted to find out. You come from Hawaii, are you Hawaiian or whatever, you this, you that, you know, and where did you see Last Dragon? <laughs> and he, he kind of didn't want him talking to me, you know, one of those, oh, don't bother people, this and that. And I, I wanted to talk to him. <laughs> you know, I wanted, I wanted to find out because I get stopped by all different types of people still. I had a guy in the south side of Chicago say to me, I just want to say, you inspired me to get into the martial arts. And I said, respectfully, I have to say to you, I'm glad the movie did and that, you know, everything's turned out great for you, but I can take no credit for inspiring you by my, <laughs> the martial arts, by my performance in that movie, you know? So, but I, I'm glad you, you know, if you enjoyed it. And <laughs> I wasn't exactly Bruce Lee in the movie, you know? So I, uh, but it's really, I love the way they play, you know, if you think about it, I mean, it's Motown's, first film and to my knowledge and if you think about like we were groundbreaking with all the different the, the variety uh, uh, of different peoples you know the rainbow of America and the world was in that film and the way they did takes on the young black they're trying to be Chinese the Chinese guys trying to be uh, rappers African American rappers or whatever it would determine the time you know like they were they were if you remember the three guys, you know, so it was really, they playfully took everything. It was crossovers with everyone. It was all different types of people in that seven, seven. And I think that was, uh, I don't know how many films had that at that time. If you think about it, you know, we were pretty groundbreaking and you know what? The film, 
very Goldie Coleman. I think I could watch that again and still enjoyed it. And the music, it was interesting, like very Gordy, here I am, this guy, I'm living in Queens and still, you know, doing theater and trying to get into films. And here he comes up to me and says, I need your help, Rock. <laughs> we have this new uh, thing. I think her name was Charlene. Can you put in a plug for her? And, you know, and I started that living, you know, when we were in that, in Eddie Arcadian's big, uh, that was awesome. That was on 11th Avenue and 55th, which may be a studio now, but I think it was like a deserted public high school or something like that. They were turning into a studio. And we had all the big martial arts people from around the country flew in to do that big fight and everything. And, and he said, listen, I need you. So we had all those big screens up. Can you imagine? I didn't. I mean, the technology then, I'm looking up at this stuff. And I had to say, oh, that's my favorite, Charlene, you know. And they debarge, you still hear that song, Rhythm of the Night, you know. My wife loved that song. So it was like, I just, I look back on that as a tremendous experience. The only problem I had, in the beginning, I had all this fake jewelry. And at the time, I had these allergies that I discovered about. From everything from polyester to, I don't, I don't know what the heck I was discovering. But I had an allergy to cheap jewelry. And they wanted to do a big thing about me wearing all this jewelry. And I was breaking out left and right. I was rash and couldn't figure it out. So I'd be, <laughs> I'd be taking this powder and <laughs> Chris Bernie said, you're going to choke me with all that you're putting on in the dressing room. And, uh, and then finally a dermatologist explained to me what was going on. Cause I was doing everything. Called it. I'd be on prednisone and just, uh, Gaining more weight and just it was it was a real uh, it was a real experience and a learning experience and they wound up coating it with some kind of plastic because this dermatologist said you can't wear this you know uh, and I kept saying can I put it around my coat and finally the first AD Tom Riley who became a producer and worked with the uh, he stood up for me and said no this is not it's not right you can't do this this is going this is a medical thing we've got to figure out a way there's no way we put it on my neck. And so that was the only down experience I had in the film, but it was a learning experience for the future, you know? And, but aside from that, every day was just laughter. And there were, there were places now that are studios. There was a place uptown on the east, way up east, the Washburn Wire Company. And my friend Smitty told me they had to go in there. It was deserted. And we filmed in there. By the time we got there, I thought it was, it was a big warehouse, I think, on the... If you're familiar with New York, it was like 116th Street or something, and Third uh, Avenue. It was up there. It was. I remember because my, my brother's priest, my oldest brother, was a cop in New York, and my brother's priest was there at the time. But this thing was deserted and filthy, and the electricians and grips had to go up there and really be pioneers and, <laughs> and go up steps. I was feeling sorry for myself that I had to be around this, uh, you know. Uh, you know, when I was, when we finally got there, you know, like, oh man, I said, this place is nuts. We did the escape scenes in it. In fact, where I get kicked in the balls and everything with, and Chris Murray, when the, was the star go against his, um, by his head. It's been a while since I've seen that movie, so forgive me. You know, I get a chance, I'll watch it, but, uh, you know, you know, if I see it on TV, it was on recently, and, you know, uh, my friends told me, but I didn't get to see it. But sometimes I'll go around the channel and say, oh, yeah. Jeez. And of course, the usual reaction, you look at yourself, teacher's so young. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> you know, people tell me that I haven't aged much. You know, I was at the Goodfellas dream, but I said, oh boy, <laughs> look at that. Look at that. You say, well, all right. a few years, I guess. <laughs> yeah, that was a, uh, a, a great time. And I, I think they're going to do some cool things, right? They're going to have, I know they had an event in New York and uh, Timac. I actually got a, uh, a text from Timac uh, just recently. Timac, uh, and he was with Chris Murney. I think they were together um, a few months ago, then they were at another event or something, and they you know, they said, oh, we gotta let you know we're, we're, in, uh, we're all together. I said, oh, tell Chris I'm in Maui, and, and Timac always sends a nice message to me. I know he's trying to produce his own film, uh, I think, as a, might be trying to, he had sent me a really good script, and he was a, a detective with action, and of course he's He's older now and make that work, you know. And Vanity went on to do a couple of things after that and went through different personal changes, I think, for the better, from what I've heard. And say, and I'm not that she was a problem. I just mean, like, you know, found a new way of life. But she was fun on the set. I and She was always nice. And uh, Julius Carter would give her a hard time because she had been with Prince and she'd play her own. She was a solo artist now. And she would play, uh, you know, her newest cuts from her album and Julius Carey would go, yeah, she said, come on, Julius, no, is this great or what? And they go, yeah. And she'd be so destroyed. <laughs> He'd wink at me. He would wink at me all the time. She'd be like, what, you don't like it? He goes, yeah, it's all right. You know, he had a tremendous sense of humor. And when you see him and when you saw him in person and on shows, I mean, he looked so different and played these like different characters, you know, he's a good man. All right, thank you to Mike Starr. And, of course, here is the man who played Mr. Eddie Arcadian himself, Christopher Murney. Did you know you always wanted to be an actor? It was the only thing I could do, Mike. It, was, it worked out. Actually, I wanted to, I studied astronomy, oceanography, and uh, ended up with a degree in hotel management and business and kept flunking astronomy and oceanography and hated hotel management and business. So by default... I ended up trying out for a show when I was in, at the University of New Hampshire and uh, ended up being at it and studying Shakespeare and then and then teaching it with my wife, who is still my wife, and that was back in the 60s. And we did theater together, teaching graduate classes, and then I went on to uh, just to doing it for a living. And never stopped, so here I am. How did you make that transition into Hollywood? I really never did. I was I was always a New Yorker. I was always an East Coast person. So I went to L.A. I did a series in the 70s sometime, early to mid-70s, and stayed out there for about two years. That was during when MASH was running. I didn't, you know, and uh, I just didn't like it, didn't care for L.A. So I said, I'm going to move back. So I've been in, we just sold our place in New York City, so uh, we're now uh, up in the Orange County area and in bucolic Hudson Valley of New York. So that's what. Uh, so I've always been doing it. I mean, uh, the the adjustment to L.A. was I would go out there to do a show or do a film. I mean, but then I would always come back to the East. I never got to. I love the seasons. That's part of my problem. I just love the change of seasons. I think the first thing I remember seeing you in was uh, taking a Pelham One Two Three. That first movie. That was my first film. Yeah, that I did. I, I did a couple of TV shows before that, but they were very little known. Very, very little known. One was called the DA, and I can't remember who was even the lead in it. Because I had gone out to L.A. to do a movie, 
with Victor Joy called The Teachings of Don Juan, a Yaki Way of Knowledge, which is a kind of a head film of the great based on a novel in the 60s, written by Carlos Castaneda. And it never went. It just it, it died at the vine. So I was stuck in L.A., and I had to do something. So Between washing windows and uh, waiting for the theater to open up in the, in the fall, I ended up going and doing some small roles in episodic television out there. That was in the late 60s. Of course, remember you as uh, Tommy Hanoran in Slapshot. Uh, that, that was one of my favorite. That was that was just terrific and more fun than you could ever imagine. I'm it's still, I, there, are, there are two films that just keep giving. And believe it or not, The Last Dragon is one and Slapshot is the other. It's been a joy, those two films. And both completely different and catering to two completely different audiences. But both joyous and, and doing them. Just great fun. Yeah, just the the cast on Slapshot just always astounds me when I watch that movie and it's just like, Oh, I forgot this person. Oh yeah, that person's in here. Yeah, it's just it's just a fun a fun film. And I still I haven't seen it in a while, but uh, people it obviously has great legs, and it's uh, people are always writing to me about it, um, uh, either through my website or in, in Facebook, and it's just and it's and it's still funny. Apparently, it's just still makes people laugh. How did you get involved with the Last Dragon? It seems like such a strange step for you. It was I needed at the time. I probably I just needed a job. I had come off. I don't know what I was coming off of at that time. And it was different. It was really odd. It was just, and it wasn't just The Last Dragon. It was a, a send-up of kung fu films. And that's how it was. It wasn't even quite described like that. But then it became Barry Gordy's The Last Dragon. I went, well, that's a little narcissistic, but we'll go with it. And I met him, and he was a delightful guy. And and I walked, I just didn't, I had a, a devil-may-care attitude about it. Let's put it that way. I didn't care that much. But then they said, you want to do it? And I went, well, yeah, I'm sure I went there. Let's, let's play. And a lot of it, a lot of the playing became an improv world within the movie. A lot of the lines, they, uh, I would just run with it, whether they were, we didn't want a little piggy peed in our eyes or where this guy come from, we didn't order out or different lines that I would just start throwing out there. And at first a little umbrage was taken and I wasn't sticking to the script and and he kind of went, well, wait a minute, it's kind of funny. Well, let me leave it alone. And that's what happened. So it was it was a job. I spoke last week to Mike Starr, and he said that you guys had quite a fun time on this film. We did. We had a grand time. And he's Mike's a good egg, too. He's a good guy, and we had fun doing it. It was I try to have fun in all the all the jobs that I do. It's just, it just makes life easier. What was the um, atmosphere like on set? I found it rather relaxed. I mean, it, it was... It was hectic because there, there's always time restraints. Uh, it was it wasn't overly rushed. There were a lot of people that are involved in that who hadn't been in the business long, young actors, you know, and they were just just learning the learning the ropes. But uh, it, I don't think they held up the process at all. And as a result, things moved right along. And when uh, Mike and I were playing, it was we just had fun. What was it like? You shared a lot of screen time with uh, Faith Prince. What was she like to work with? Well, I had known Faith before that. It was Faith's first uh, film. As a matter of, did you get to interview her? Not yet. I'm trying. Okay. 
she's a, she's a terrific person. She, she lives up in this area, not where I live. Not, I mean, now we're in, I don't know whereabouts now, but she lives in the area somewhere. And, uh, she's, she's a terrific lady. And she was a little nervous at the time, but it was her first film. She didn't know. And then she kind of got into it. And as you can see, she's just a funny lady. Oh, that voice. Oh yeah. my God, that voice. <laughs> oh yeah. She was great. She was, she was great. What was it like working with Michael Schultz on this one? Um, I was trying to think. I, I like, I like Michael Schultz. He's a very quiet, as I remember, a quiet director. In fact, he's directing now. I just heard, um, um, Blackish. I, uh, some, some of those out in, uh, in LA. Uh, he was very, he was very quiet. I mean, Barry Gordy was on set a lot. And, uh, Mike was, Mike, Michael Schultz was just a delight, I thought, to work with. And very easygoing and had his setups going, knew what he wanted. And I don't remember it as being hectic. Of course, don't forget it was, that almost 30 years ago. Things calmed down after 30 years. Nothing seems overly hectic. If, if, if you would ask me about a week after we stopped, maybe it would have been a different answer. You said a lot of people remember you for Slapshot and The Last Dragon. Do they uh, quote a lot of your lines back to you when they see you on the street? If I had a dollar for every time I signed uh, anything pertaining to my wife and Slapshot, I would, uh, I'd be a wealthy man, uh, which is really it was Paul's line, but I'm the one who writes it all the time. God bless Suzanne. In fact, I've, there, there are routines now that people get up about, you know, about myself and Suzanne and leaving the hockey world and opening up our own uh, business at a turf farm in New England. That didn't work out. It was always a fish shop. Uh, it would just go from one to the other. It was relentless. But I had to, I, it was, yeah, people that, and on golf outings, when we're doing charity events, for I, they will, the line will ring across fairways. Hey, Abraham! And the rest, as you, Suzanne sucks pussy! So there. <laughs> Do you ever hear it in your dreams? No, I, I no, no, but no, not yet. I'll do, when I get older, maybe I'll, you know, that will be one of the last things I remember. Yeah, famous last words, right? Yeah, something for your tombstone. Honey, come here, honey. I want to tell you something, honey. <sighs> anyway, this is fascinating for a podcast. I know there's been a lot of screenings, especially recently, because of the big anniversary of The Last Dragon. Have you attended any of those? I did. I went to one in, in New York last last November. I did. I went down and did a, uh, it was a weekend of the Urban Action Network. And it was a wonderful, great group of people. And I didn't, I really did not realize what a cult film it had become. It was, I didn't realize that Slapshot had it, but in the night. Uh, late 90s, we did. And then that's when we did realize that that one had maintained a cult status. But The Last Dragon, I, I wasn't aware. And now I am. And it's uh, it's quite, it's terrific. I think it's a, and the more I think about it, the more I realize how it did attract a very urban, an urban group of young people with, who looked at the movie because of its humor, yet with, yet with an uplifting attitude and a positive ending and uh, and and a great deal of irreverence. Uh, I thought it was a. The more I looked at it, I went, "Oh, hell, that's a pretty damn good film for that reason." Now that's just attitude-wise, but it was. Uh, the more I thought about it, and I did see it that night that, uh, over that weekend, and thought, "Well, yeah, it's um, it's it's certainly a it has a style all its own being done in that." Which you guys, I'm sure, will 
we'll get into when you talk about it. You are such a good villain in there. An outrageous villain. <laughs> but, but that's that's why it's fun. I mean, that's you know, people say, "Who do you play?" They play the bad white guy. But they were the the, the fans of it are just are terrific and 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 across the spectrum. I mean, I was amazed at how many people showed up to the screening in New York and at the AMC theaters in Times Square. I was it was packed. It was packed. How does that feel for you coming back to something so many years ago and seeing that impact? You know, so recently. Well, first of all, it feels old to me because it's me. And I'm going, God, I did that 30 years ago. But really, it's it's very gratifying. It's certainly, I mean, it's, and it's flattering because people remember and, and had an influence on their lives in a positive way, not in a negative way. And, and enjoyed something that I could give them, not knowing that I was really doing anything altruistically, which I wasn't. It was just enjoying something that I did uh, 30 years ago and remember it with, with fondness. So much so that they're willing to come out and, and say thank you, which they did. So I, I, I thought it was pretty cool. What have been some of your favorites to do over the years? You mean films? Yeah, uh, films or TV even. I, you know, there were some that are, so, that are obscure. I did one with Lee Ullman, but it was the scenes with Lee Ullman. And that was one of my favorite things because I loved, I had to seduce her and I was an evil, evil man. And it was called the Jehovah Timmerman. It was um, based on a, on the Cinco de Mayo in Argent, in uh, Argentina. Many, you know, in the in the fifties was it or sixties? And Roy Scheider was in it also. He played the title role. And it was just one of those joyous little. It was a TV movie, Prisoner Without a Name, Cell Without a Number, Jehovah Timmerman. And another one I enjoyed doing was in Europe, which called the. Uh, which was a TV a movie for the old Thames television. It was called uh, The One and Only Phyllis Dixie with Leslie Ann Down. And that was another one I truly enjoyed doing. And these are obscure nowadays. I suppose you can still find them, but I, I don't quite know where. And and as far as the ser- television series goes, I, I did a series called Remember When on AMC. It was AMC's first uh, scripted series. Uh, and then we did it for three or four years, and I, I loved it. I loved doing it. It was very intense. Uh, it was one camera film, shot full thirty minutes in four days every week, and we shot over fifty episodes. And if you ever get the opportunity, you should look at it. It was AMC's first scripted, as I said, first scripted series. Uh, Rupert Holmes was the main writer on it, and it was. I thought it was a delightful piece. It took place in an old radio radio station in the late 30s. Started out in the late 30s and worked its way up in the beginning of the Second World War. Uh, and it's about the survival of this old radio station called WENN. Remember when? Against the title. So if you ever get if you ever get a chance to get it, you can petition AMC see if they would uh, release it. And it's not. I don't think you can get it. I don't know. Yeah, I remember trying to track down a couple episodes of that a few years ago, and they didn't even have it on some of these, uh, you know, less than legitimate sites or like eBay sellers selling it or anything. So, mm-hmm. trying to get my hands on it. They're bootleg. I mean, they're all. I mean, if anybody has them, somebody they tape them or grab them off the off the television or, or VHS. I mean, I don't know how they got. There, there are 
apparently some out there, but I don't know the quality that uh, that they exist in. I really enjoyed you, of course, in uh, Maximum Overdrive, which uh, you know is probably one of the high marks of your resume. <laughs> hey, hey, I had a good time with old Camp. I called him Willie Loman's third cousin removed. Camp Loman. I have a lot of fun with that movie. Whenever it's on TV, I will always leave it on. <laughs> it was fun, and it was, and Stephen King directed it. That's why I did it. That's that's why I did that. I met him, and he asked me. I said, "I didn't care." I said, "Absolutely." Yeah, it is. It is. It's a B movie. It's I, I like obviously like B movies. Yeah, I really liked you in Murder by the Book. Oh wow, I've forgotten that one. Oh my. Oh wow, I did see. I, I remember we, that was a long time ago, man. I was shot that in Canada, I believe. Yep. But uh, amazing uh, cast. Oh, it's a great. Yeah, I. Uh, I'm trying. Try, trying to bring it back here. That's out of the blue. Oh, go ahead. Refresh my brain. It was uh, Robert Hayes and Catherine Mary Stewart. That's, and that's right. That's Fred right. Gwynn. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Oh, and Fred was, that's right. That's right. Okay, thank you. All right. Yeah, it was, it was fun. It was fun. It was another one that I did many, many years ago for Hallmark Hall of Fame that I enjoyed doing with, with John Lithgow and I and he said, um, Harry Haynes, that was called Oh, Country Girl. Country Country Girl. Yeah, that was a that was a hoot. And Secret of My Success was another fun film that I liked doing. I enjoyed and uh, Michael Fox is a great guy and we had a good time doing that. But you mentioned Fred Gwynn and he was in that too. Yeah, he was another good, good fella. A good fella. Yeah, I uh I can't say that I go back to Last Exit to Brooklyn very often, but I do remember you being very good at it. It's just such a harrowing film that I can't really it's, watch it's it very often. It's tough to watch, man. It's tough to... It is, uh, it's not, you know, it's like, not like... You don't get a box of popcorn sit in front of the TV and say, okay, this is going to be a fun evening. I mean, because it's... it's And it's Uli Adele who directed it. You know, it's quite... And it's a relentless... It's, it's It really whacks you over the head a number of times. Well, the book does, too, so... When you take that off the pages and you put it on the screen, Jesus, it can just it can just beat you down because of its relentless. Well, there it is. It just beats you down. What are you working on these days? Mostly, mostly, I well, I just did a little indie, a small role in an indie film called uh, The Passing Season because my son is in it also, so I had to do that. And it's a small independent film, just finished it, so I don't know when it will be out. It's it's about, it's a coming of age, not of a young age, of a mid-20s coming of age, life of a hockey player who, coincidentally, who no longer can play hockey and has to find out what his lot in life and direction will be. And uh, so I did that, but most of the stuff I do know, I do a lot of voice work and narration for whatever they ask me to narrate or commercials and Stuff like that that I can because I put a studio in my house and in the Hudson Valley I have a home studio so I don't have to go anywhere I can do it here. That's what I do mostly now. I don't I, I I'm not retired but I'm not running around looking for another film at this moment. But if somebody called me and said, Hey, you want to play? You know, I'm there. Well, Mr. Murney, this has been a real pleasure talking to you. Mike, thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you. I'm glad we could work this out and. And uh, I did listen to your other podcast. I one with Donnie Scardino, an old friend of mine, who I because you guys went on for two and a half hours on a. I think it was what what was it Serpic? No, what was it? Cruising, cruising with Al Pacino. 
That's the one. Holy crap! You guys, you you did a you did a uh, you know a dissection of that one. I hope you enjoyed it. Sometimes we go on for a little long. Oh no, I enjoyed. It. I enjoyed it. I, I did. I said, well, you know, if you want to analyze a film, what the hell? Might as well analyze a film. And you, and you did. You guys really got into it. But it was enjoyable to listen to you, and you guys, you're good. So good luck and have a great time with this one. I hope you do. And finally, last but not least, is the producer of the Last Dragon, Mister Rupert Hitzig. So what was it like working on Jaws 3? Because, I mean, that's some people love that movie. Some people, it's just the, one of the worst films ever made. I mean, wh- where do you fall on that, and how was the experience? It can't be considered one of the worst films. First of all, it happened in a year. I got pulled in by Sid Scheinberg, who asked me if I want to produce a film, and I said, do you have a script? He said, no. And I said, I don't really want to do a sequel. And he said, well, look at this. And he was said, come over here. And they went over to his desk and he wrote Jaws 3. I said, I know what you're doing. And he said, watch. And he put a hyphen, he put D. And I said, oh, my God. Do you think we can do it? When do you want it? He said, next July 4th. Well, that was 11 months from then. No script, no cast, no shooting, no place to shoot, no shark. The shark had been destroyed. Um, and so all those mechanics had to be built. And I said, I'll do it. And is there? I said, is there a 3D system that works underwater? He said, I don't know. There was no over and under system. I had to create that with Aeroflex. And for 15 minutes, I was the foremost expert in the world on 3D. And I made a video that went to every projectionist at 3,500 theaters to show them how to tell them how to project that. Well, now 3D is, you know, we could, when the shark came, he said to me, if you can figure out a way to get the shark that comes through the control room and lands in the audience's lap, we're going to make them, we're going to both be rich. And I said, what a challenge. Well, it was a challenge you could never do because they think it's a lousy movie because all those animatronics had to be created on videotape because there was no CGI then. And then it had to be transferred back to 35 and then it had to be the way that 35, the way that the 3D worked was it was an equivalent of a technoscope frame was divided in half. So the quality of the film was only half the space on the negative because it was an over and under. And then, and then I mean, I... I went three weeks down the road with a company called Optimax, who were complete frauds, and we ended up, and then we couldn't get the filter to work, and because we were going to drain the lagoon at SeaWorld, and that was where the million six hundred thousand gallons of water kind of come from, and it just came in, and there's no filter big enough to, so we had to stop and build production, and I had to go over and get filters from Wet and Wild and close them down and bring them over. It was it was a nightmare, but you know what? We opened on July 4th, the biggest film Universal ever had for that first weekend. Unfortunately, I got a call that first weekend from Sid Scheinberg and said, you're a genius. We did it. We're the number one film. I never heard from him again because the second week only dropped 48%. <laughs> They're all experiences. Yeah, I've, I'm not familiar with that kind of 3D. I'm, I'm more old school, familiar with like the, the two-projector system and you know the red-blue and all that. This was over and under. Means the same technoscope frame split it between two images, the right and the left eye. There's five, there's a five degree cant between the two of them, and the challenge was to figure out where you want the eye to focus for the 3D, and then you find that was called the point of convergence. And when you were looking at dailies, your eyes would get roasted because the convergence would go off because you hadn't cut it yet. So you'd see times when the convergence, they were focusing on the convergence and your eyes would get obliterated, obliterated. You'd, ah, you'd scream in pain. So I put a sign over the uh, screen in the motel in Orlando and said, just when you thought it was safe to open your eyes, Jaws 3D. 
if you if you have a little time, can I ask you about the Last Dragon? Oh, it was a great that was a great experience. I'll tell you about the Last Dragon. The Last Dragon, I found Timac because I worked with him because he had more flair than anybody else. He came in dressed in a red, white, and blue suit, and he's the only guy that came in for the audition with a karate routine and played the played music behind it. And uh, I didn't want Barry to see him because he was had the final thing until I'd worked with him. So I really rehearsed with him. I believed in him. I thought he was handsome as hell. But the thing about The Last Dragon is that it has more staying power than any film, I think, in the African-American community. I have, up to this day, anytime I see a man between 8 and 80, 18 and 80, uh, if I say to them, uh, who's the meanest enough is all show enough, they will beam, their, their smile goes from ear to ear, and they say, what you talking about? I said, that's The Last Dragon. They said, I know what that is. I've seen that 10 times. Said, well, what are you talking about? I said, I made la- you made The Last Dragon? No, he... It, it, it's uh, it's gotten me out of trouble, hotspot with with black hostile blacks. Uh, I, I, I did films for Schwarzenegger in the uh, Correctional Institute in Folsom. They found out I did the Last Dragon. They were yelling those five cells, five stories. They were yelling out, "Look around, Leroy, see what you can find." And uh, it's it's got great resonance. And the thing about the Last Dragon is that was another disastrous time I had because after it was over. Uh, the president of TriStar called me to come up to his office on the 33rd floor, Jeff Zagansky. And I walked into the office not knowing. My my deal with Motown was over. I'd been working for two years on the film. But I went in to see the president of TriStar because he was very grateful for the fact that I'd brought this thing in without any problems. And he said, how would you like to direct the sequel? And I said, Jeff, my whole thrust is just directing. I directed all the fights in Last Dragon, and you know I did the second unit. And he said, I know, and you did this so good. We'd like you to do it. If you can do it for $8 million, we're going to do a sequel. Well, I was on top of the world again. Here, my dream had come true, came back again. And I was at Pritikin about four days later in Pacific Palisades, and I got paged, which never happens in the gym. And I picked up the phone and says, this is the chairman speaking. I said, well, what are you calling me? That was Barry Gordy. Why are you calling me here? He says, I'm in, uh, I'm in Chicago. Oh, good. Well, is it true you went up to Jeff Zagansky to direct the sequel to my picture? I said, well, I was there, yes, and... He actually offered it to me. Well, I was going to offer you that. Now I can't do that anymore. So there ain't going to be no Last Dragon 2. You ain't going to direct that film. And uh, I said, but, 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 but Barry, and he was like a brother to me, really. He was, he, we were really good friends. Um, I, I, I didn't call a meeting. He called me. He says, you were in the room, weren't you? He said, that's good enough for me. And uh, he said, how many times? I said, can I, can I talk to you? He says, how many times you heard this voice on the phone? I said, about 400. He said, well, take a good listen. This is the last time you're ever going to hear it. And I never heard it again. And they killed The Last Dragon too. About three months later, I went down to Hitsville to my friend Guy Costa, who worked for Motown. I said, give me a rap track. And I sent him, Mr. Chairman, Mr. Chairman, please pick up the phone. I'm sitting down in Market Street feeling all alone. I went to see Sigansky. That part is true. But I sure as hell didn't mean to bypass you. I was looking for a job, a job, a job. <laughs> and, I, and I sent it to him. And, and then Edna, his secretary, called the chairman wants you to know you got more rhythm than Norman Whitfield, but it ain't going to do you no good. <laughs> but the last dragon was great fun. Yeah, uh, yeah, I was curious how it was working for for Gordy. I mean, since he's uh, you know unbelievable local legend. We, we, in the pre-production, we'd meet uh, up in Bel Air in his house. Every single detail. Every time we had a meeting, was ten of us. And everything was discussed. Finally, they would all go away, and I was left with the problems. When he came to New York. He came with an entourage, and they took over the 10th floor at the Hotel Carlisle. We were supposed to, I was trying to hold the prices down. 
negotiating, like with Jay Dubin to do the glow. And I said, well, you know, we don't have a lot of money. And we, we, and then we said, once I called him, I said, okay, Jay Dubin's in. We're doing the whole glow for 80,000, which was cheap back then, actually. And Suzanne DePass said, bring him over to the Carlisle to meet the chairman. We're going to have a, a celebration. And I walked in the Carlisle after telling them we didn't have any money, and they had a spread of champagne and canapes like you haven't could believe with waiters running around. <laughs> and Dubin looked at me, you prick. <laughs> so they were very glad that at TriStar that I brought that in and, and didn't give them any problems. I handled Gordy well because we were friends. Cause, yeah, that was like the last movie that uh, he produced, I think, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah, because he did a whole string of, uh, I thought, some really good stuff with The Wiz. Yeah, he's, he's a very interesting guy. In fact, one of the things that um, I brought to him, you know, because I really like sound in Wolfing, we, we won the uh, we won the Golden Reel Award, and I was very responsible for the sound. Even though I had great guys, Wiley Stateman and um, Lon Bender, who were a couple of young kids with not enough to scratch on, that was their first film, and they became Sound Deluxe, and they sold their company for eighty million dollars about fifteen years later. But uh, the sound design and all of it was I was really very emphatic about the sound. And Walla, I had been interested in. I'd been part of a Walla group. You know what Walla is? No. Well, when you go in and you, you know, when you film a cocktail scene, for example, in a movie, uh, nobody in the background, the atmosphere, nobody makes a sound. They just move their lips. And then when you have a sound group doing the ADR, the additional dialogue recording, you do Walla, which is Walla, 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 Walla. So it's called Walla, and it brings the scene to life, as does Foley, which is the footsteps and all the effects. And uh, I went to the studio. I was very close to Barry. And uh, we went to the studio because I told him that I didn't think that he could tell the difference between digital sound and and analog. That was when it first came out. So we went to do a test. And we were in Hitsville. And I said to him, he played the first version of, of the song we used, The Barges, in the rhythm of the night. And I said, why don't we put Walla in? He said, what are you talking about? I said, why don't we give them, it's a party. Why don't we put voices on the track like they do in the movies? And he said, well, I don't know. That sounds like a good idea. And they did it. And then that led to Lionel Richie's All Night Long where he used voices. So that was how that came about in the changing world we live in, which nobody really knows. If I were to spell Walla, how would it be spelled? W-A-L-A, Walla Walla. W-A-L-L-A, Walla Walla. And I think they even put a hyphen between them, Walla Walla. But they're called Walla Walla groups, you know, the, the guys who do the ADR. And what you do when you sit there in the Walla groups, uh, you look at a scene, and there's a woman in the back. With, she yells out, she mouths, help, I'm being raped. And one of the people in the Walla group will say, I'll take her. And the other guy, you see an officer come across, and he doesn't say anything, or it's not been miked. And he says, get, get, them, pe- get them people back. And another guy from the Walla group say, I'll take the guy up there. Okay, help, I've been raped. Hey, get them people back. And you go back and re-record it. That's how all those voices get onto every film. But Walla Walla is, Walla is just uh, crowd scenes and things like that. You, you just, all right, once you've finished all the specific voices, then you lay down a bed of Walla.
second, we were talking about The Last Dragon. Just to fill in a little bit, uh, in the interim, while you guys were listening to all those interviews, I checked with Carl Gottlieb, and indeed, he is the man who did a pass on The Last Dragon script. I don't know if Bruce Valanche was involved at all. That's what the IMDB says, and you know they're never wrong, but... Carl Gottlieb has confirmed that he was the person who did at least one pass on the Last Dragon script. So he also had this to say, he said, uh, It all turned to crap when Barry Gordy took over the production and his protege, Suzanne de Passe, became the authority on the script. Not a happy memory, except for the fact that she didn't get the screen credit that she was looking for. So... There we go, from the horse's mouth, as it were. So let's get back into our discussion of The Last Dragon. Now, we talked a little bit about uh, these kind of urban kung fu films, and I really can't think of a whole lot of them other than The Last Dragon. It seemed like this was kind of a like a last holdout of exploitation and kind of like the, 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 the one right before kind of the breakdance movies really kind of came to the fore. What do you guys think? But, you know, that that was one of the things that I wanted to bring up, too, which is, is uh, Breaking uh, Electric Boogaloo. That, the, the lead actor in that, you know, the protagonist kind of reminds me um, of this uh, protagonist in The Last Dragon in that he's, you know, a more or less a kind of passive, uh, not active type of protagonist, yet he centers the film in such a profound way. But, yeah, I, I would think Crushed Groove and, and Breaking would be, Two films that have a slightly stronger legacy in a way. I think uh, Beast yeah, Wars as well, I, although not as I, strong of a film as as Breaking. Yeah, I, I agree. Beach Street would would definitely be. I just didn't think it it, it gets that. You know, it's not as well known. It seems as Crush Groove. I, I don't even see it like Crush Groove. I've seen played on 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 TV over the past. A uh, year, at least once or twice, uh, you don't you don't see Beach Street played, even Wild Style, you know, played too often. More than anything, when it comes to Beach Street, the thing that I remember the most was that awesome album cover and just kind of the logo of the film. Though I do have to say, I just rewatched that film recently. It's been on uh, Comcast On Demand lately, or sorry, Xfinity lately. So uh, if you want some good afternoon entertainment, I would definitely recommend checking that out. Definitely is a important film uh, of that time. And it, it is kind of a shame that both Beach Street and Wild Style uh, don't get the claim that even a film like, you know, Breaking, Crush Groove, and even The Last Dragon get in a sense. Am I just blanking, though, when it comes to other, like, urban kung fu films? Were there other ones that I'm just not remembering? Uh, no, see, that's the thing. That's why, you know, I think the film Black Dynamite, you know, with its release, uh, and I know the projection booth did a great job with that one. Uh, Black Dynamite, it, it kind of, you go, wow, they're really... There really weren't a lot of films, black martial art films of, of the Last Dragon type of nature. You know, there were more of the the Beach Street, you know, Crush Groove type of, you know, music biz type of things. That started to become the era of Van Damme, so it became, um, I don't think there was a lot of interest in terms of production and financing of, of films uh, with the black protagonist martial arts, you know, relative to films like when films like Bloodsport and, you know, kickboxing and things can make a lot more money. No retreat, no surrender, 
I have to say, it kind of feels like we started to lose our black action heroes at some point because we had so many great ones in the 1970s going into the 1980s, and then it just kind of faded out. I mean, we started to come into the, you know, Seagal's and Schwarzenegger's and Stallone's and these guys, and like Fred Williamson and Jim Kelly and these other guys kind of faded off into the distance and we would get other people like a Carl Weathers or, you know, uh, Billy, um, Oh God, the guy who was doing all the, uh, the workout tapes and those things. But I just didn't have, uh, the same kind of, uh, relationship to black action heroes of the late eighties, early nineties as I, could see when it came to these this other um, you know generation of of action stars. Yeah, what's strange is, is you know people kind of bemoaned the uh, lack of opportunities for time after this film, which is true. But what's interesting is is you know it's this is kind of like that dead period for uh, the black male protagonist, and and, and the early nineties and mid nineties is when it just broke open, you know, with all these actors, uh, Denzel and Sam Jackson and, and others uh, having opportunities. So it was kind of like a strange period for um, the black male protagonist with the actor like Ty Mac, you know, who they didn't really know what to do with uh, after this type of film. I, I feel like as someone who's very, very late to the game for this movie that um – that it's just it's still incredibly enjoyable on so many levels, and they're they're like like we mentioned earlier, there's really just a lot going on all throughout it. That um if if you were like me and you haven't for some reason or or another haven't seen it, like definitely go out and and, and check it out because it's really really entertaining. And any uh any programmers the Alamo or whatever, please do a triple feature with a uh, Big Trouble and Golden Child. Definitely release socket to me, ice hockey to you. We we, we need all that good stuff yes. from us. Uh, I think you know people will buy it up. All right, let's take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Listen, you know, I think it's going to blow in El Salvador real soon. I thought if you guys could get me a new press card for two grand, I could get you some really good stuff. What do you say? This is serious, okay? I need one for old time's sake. You gotta give me 500 bucks to go to El Salvador. They kill people here, boy. You believe everything you read in the papers? Yeah, Come on, man. You're gonna love it here. What? Getting out of here, boy. Look, Doc, this is my last chance. If I can get some good combat shots for AP, you know, I can make some money. Whatever you do, okay? <laughs> Don't get on the ground. They're not just shooting the Indians. They're shooting at us. Chaos has descended on tiny El Salvador in Central America. They rearranged this kid's molecules and they took their time about it. Richard, he is dying out there right now while we're talking. Those sick old man, get out, okay? Some of the information or photos you can throw my way. <laughs> it's fantastic. I mean, they could come tonight, they could take her away, and they could kill her, too. Richard, Richard, that doesn't have anything to do with us. Marry me. It is widely rumored, sir, that you are the head of the death squads terrorizing the countryside of the city. A pathological killer on the right, God knows what on the left, and a gutless middle. Ma'am, these are not combat troops. 
the ambassador, you know, United States. You gotta get close, Rick, to get the truth. You get too close, you die. <laughs> You're gonna be in big heaven, man. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Oliver Stone's Salvador. We'll be joined by Jamie Duvall and Matt Zoller-Seitz, who has a new book about Stone coming out. Before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-hosts, Julian Boyance and Chris Cummins. Now, Chris, the last time we talked was the... uh, right before you had a big event in New York where you're talking about Doctor Who and a few other things. What are you up to at the moment? Uh, you can find my uh, stuff at uh, Uproxx and Den of Geek, and you can follow me on Twitter at Bionic Bigfoot and at Sci-Fi Explosion. Did you get any death threats from Steve Moffat fans? <laughs> no, because I think uh, I think a lot of Steve Moffat fans agree with me that it's time for him to leave the show. Another one of my fellow contestants from the Ultimate Film Fanatic, and somebody who actually got to go in front of the camera, uh, Julian, what has been keeping you busy these days? Uh, just continuing to try to do some film blogging, you know, uh, videos that I have on YouTube. Uh, Godard fan is my handle there. Same thing on Twitter, Godard fan. And so, you know, just continuing to try to um, teach film uh, when the opportunities these present and continue to film blog. All right. Thanks again, fellas, for coming on the show. And thanks to everybody for listening. We hope that you can make some moves and get on over to our website projection-boot.com where you can leave us some feedback link on over to our itunes where you can rate and review the show and link to our patreon page where you can give us some of your hard-earned cash that's just one way that you can help the projection booth be the meanest be the prettiest and be the baddest podcast around this town That you need to glow, you need to glow, to glow, to grow If you love to live, you live to love life You gotta move to the upper level Cause when you got the glow, there is no stopping what you want to do Everybody know that you need to glow, you need to glow, to glow, to glow. 
And if you love to live, you live the life the way you love to love, you take to give. Cause when you got the glow, you see it on your face, you feel it in your head. People understand that you got the glow, and they'll beware, cause the power's there when you got the glow. enjoy this show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.